Astonishing Legends would like to thank Mint Mobile, Purple, Squarespace, Simply Safe, The Great Courses Plus, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. In March of 1701, Antoine de la Cadillac was being honored by Louis Hector de Calière, the governor of an enormous new territory in North America known as New France. Calière was celebrating Cadillac's new commandant title from King Louis XIV and the grant of a tract of 15 square acres to build a fort and parish and establish a new town. Cadillac, or Cadillac, planned to control fur trading and relations with First Nations peoples in the area. According to legend, a mystical woman asked for entry to the party to read palms and prophesize for the attendees. With all of the reverie, they thought this would be entertaining so they welcomed her in. She dazzled the nobility with her predictions and observations, but upon coming to Monsieur Cadillac, she predicted a prosperous future for him, but it came with a dire warning. Your future and that of your children lies in your own hands. Beware of undue ambition. It will mar all your plans. Appease the Nant Rouge. Beware of offending him. Should you be thus unfortunate, not a vestige of your inheritance will be given to your heirs. Your name will be scarcely known in the city you founded. Cadillac was not a superstitious man, and while he found her predictions entertaining, not only did he not take her warning seriously, he later laughed about it with his wife. She was very much concerned about the fortune teller's message. This is the origin story of La Nant Rouge or the Red Dwarf of the city of Detroit. Sure enough, he encountered Monsieur Cadillac, and Monsieur Cadillac was not only disrespectful but rude to the little imp. This one act wound up costing him everything, or so the legend would have us all believe. Le Nant Rouge would make several more appearances in the centuries that followed, almost always as a warning of doom. Was he the cause of the ills, or just the messenger? There are many opinions about this to this day in the great city of Detroit. When we finish this episode of Astonishing Legends, maybe you can decide for yourself if the Red Dwarf should be blamed for the misfortune his presence usually precedes. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Suddenly, across their path, trotting along the beach, advanced the uncouth figure of a dwarf, very red in the face, with a bright, glistening eye. Instead of burning, it froze. Instead of possessing depth, emitted a cold gleam like the reflection from a polished surface, bewildering and dazzling all who came within its focus. Marie Caroline Watson Hamlin, from her book Legends of Le Detroit, 1883. Join us tonight for the astonishing legend of Detroit's Lanon Rouge. Hey, nous sommes de retour. Que nous sommes. Un très magnifique, mon ami. Okay, all right, that's all I got. <laughs> well, <laughs> that was pretty good. What do you think I have this outrageous accent? <laughs> 
because we're doing, well, that's from Monty Python, of yes, course, yes. the Holy Grail, but we have another French-themed show. Yeah, apparently. we do. Two in a row. We didn't plan that. We never plan anything beyond one episode. Not true. We do a little <laughs> bit, but this was a happy accident. Yeah, and that'll be the best French accents you'll hear all night. So, but I, th- I, think, we, I think we did pretty good, yeah? Well, I'm going to let our inbox be the judge of that. Um, okay. Uh, you may ask tonight, do we have any housekeeping to go through before we start the show? And the answer is, un which uh, means a little in French. Okay. Uh, oh, very nice. Firstly, yeah. Mr. Forrest Burgess here finally took his turn on a show that I had the great yeah. pleasure of doing a year or two ago, America's Next Top Podcaster. Boy, you don't even remember if it was one or two years ago. That uh, is... Time is running together, especially in quarantine and COVID. <laughs> uh, it is sad because I, I feel exactly the same way. But yes, I did. I, and I had a blast too. Yeah, it's partly a game show, uh, partly a reality show, and then partly a podcasting how-to all wrapped up together. So it's actually a, a cool and unique idea, I think. And what they do is they start out with 12 contestants, and like most reality competition shows, they all get challenges to get through over the course of a few weeks. So there are three full-time judges with 40 years of podcasting and content creation between them, and then guest judges like me who have no idea what's going on come on to foul everything up. <laughs> well, that's exactly how I felt when I was on there. Unqualified. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, I exactly. guess we do have a little bit of content creation under our belts at this point. I'm, I'm still amazed that people listen to us at all, so. Uh, every time, my friend. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt on the show. It's just like, am I doing this show right? Because I'm I'm not sure I'm doing our own show right. Well, folks, if you want to hear my appearance on this latest series from America's Next Top Podcaster, Season 3, with yours truly, uh, which debuted on March 2nd, and five episodes have been released already, so uh, look for America's Next Top Podcaster, wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, and one last quick note. You've heard us say it before. We're going to say it a ton of times tonight. But when we say the link is in our show notes, we want to explain what that means. <laughs> a lot of times when you publish a podcast, there's all kinds of places to put information in the files. And it, But the thing is, we don't try to put the links in the file attached to the MP3 of the show itself because our research is so extensive, we're doubting most players would even display it. So instead, mm. what we do is provide an embedded link to the web page for each episode of our website, where you can find all you need to know and more about the latest topic, or any topic that we've ever done, actually. Yeah, and here's the thing, folks. Most people don't visit websites associated with podcasts, but thanks to Squarespace and our freelance designer, our website is pretty great now, if I must say so myself. So if you want to know more about any topic we cover, and you hear us mentioning show notes, Visit the webpage for that episode, which is, I got to say, pretty easy to find, and you'll see nearly every link of research we used, all the photos relating to the topic we come across, as well as the offers from our sponsors for the episode that we mentioned during the show. So that's an easy place to go find those promo code links and stuff and, and more information about the products. Yeah, and you can also find the astonishing blog, which Tess has been maintaining for years now. It has literally hundreds of entries on all things weird, wild, wonderful, and mysterious. Definitely. She's so wonderfully prolific. I, it blows my mind. Well, <laughs> so check that out if you want to go further down the rabbit hole on any of our topics. All right. Last note for the night, we made beanies or knit caps <laughs> or for some people in the South, toboggans. And no, that's not a sled. Really? It's a hat. More on that some other oh. time. But these are finally in the store. We had some production delays and we know in some parts of the country it's getting warm. But now yeah. is the time to check these out <laughs> if you want one. I'm sure they're going to be back in the winter. But if you want one now, yeah. visit AstonishingLegends.com and click on shop and then AL apparel and gear. They're pretty cool. All right, let's get into tonight's show. I still, you, I think we need to stop with the. All right, that's the last one. Okay, okay, okay I, I, I can't promise, but all right, let's get now. this thing going. <laughs> okay.
Well, this is another one of those stories that seems like it's short and simple, but has just layers upon layers of details and depth to it. The encounter itself, the event itself, or the legend itself, is just a few pages from the book that everybody points to as one of the first mentions in the United States of this being, this creature. So going off of what you just said, it's not like Le Bête du Jeboudon. And that uh, that was all three years of horrible incidents with a lot of people involved. This is one small event, but had a lasting impact and reaches far beyond just the event itself. It's truly become legendary, and it starts with a man named Antoine Lemay, L-A-U-M-E-T. But more on him in a minute. The first thing we want to do is set the stage here, a little bit of background, a little bit of a history lesson. And I learned a lot, frankly. It's funny. Mm. I thought that I had a pretty good education. I went to a good high school. <laughs> At the time, it was rated very well. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I thought I learned a lot of stuff. But man, have I learned so much more since we started our show about history. And it's just, this was an enlightening episode for me. Scott, I've, I've made this realization and this uh, lightning bolt of clarity has hit me since being long gone from college. And that once you're older, is this something I didn't have even in college when you're we're studying really deeply involved in history and, and, you know, the Peloponnesian War. And I think I've said this before. Now, as you're older, you have more context. I yeah. get the time period when this happens. And I can put it somewhere that makes sense to me in my brain, even though I I don't remember as much when I was younger, but I get it now. And so, yeah, you're right. When you look back, it's like, geez, that's when that happened? That's amazing. Well, back when we did the Pirate Lafitte, we talked a little bit about France's history trying to colonize North America back when everyone was trying to grab as much land as they could from Europe. Mm -hmm. And things hadn't really been decided yet. This actually predates that by about 80 years. So we're going back in the Wayback Machine here to the very early days of all these countries fighting to control land and trade in North America as more and more of it is continuing to be discovered every day. Yeah, And this was a particularly volatile time with uh, Britain, Spain, France, and all of the other European countries trying to stake their claim in the new world and acquire the most territory they possibly could. Well, this would be, what, about 55 years before the Seven Years' War? I, f- I forget, but yes. uh, about 60 years before uh, Le Bête du Gévaudan occurred in France. That's so right. So we're going back in time to more weirdness creatures Indeed, and, we and, and French strangeness. And we didn't plan this. I'd like to say that we did, but we didn't. No. This seemed like a good one to do right now. Well, let's talk about where this all takes place, which is New France. Not sure how many people have heard of New France. It's not around anymore. Uh, <laughs> okay. We certainly have heard of New York, and we've certainly heard of New Jersey, but New France didn't <laughs> get to stick around. And yeah. it, this is a region of North America that started with French exploration in 1534, and it continued as a territory until 1763. But our legend tonight begins in 1701. Again, as Forrest just said, about 60 years before the French and Spanish Mm. lost the Seven Years' War, which would force France to hand this huge chunk of North America over to Great Britain. And that time period in the late 1700s is, as Forrest said, where our last story about the Beast of Gévaudan took place. But for tonight, we're preceding all that by about six decades. 
Now, looking at how New France developed, and we have some pictures of it in our show notes, it's pretty interesting to look at the map. It was hard to find maps of specific years, which I did look for a long time. I could only find ones from two years. It was the early 1700s and then about 1750. But in 1712, New France had five colonies, and they were established enough that they all had their own administrations. By 1750, which is well after our story takes place, New France ranged from southern Louisiana all the way up to modern Quebec, lower Ontario, lower Manitoba, and the southeastern corner of Saskatchewan. The coastal areas of the modern U.S. at that time would still be under control of Great Britain, and southern Texas and the Four Corners region and Florida were under control of Spain. And this is interesting when you think about it. This is pretty simple basic history, but to this day, you still find Spanish influence in the Four Corners region and Florida, and you find French influence in the area that made up New France. Now, in Legends of Le Detroit, which we will be referencing a lot tonight, that's the book by Marie Caroline Watson Hamlin. She covers a lot of the legends surrounding the origins of Detroit. But the one we're concerned with tonight is that of Lenon Rouge, or the Red Dwarf. Now, in chapter four of her book, she begins her story about the origins of Lenon Rouge with a tale of a party being thrown in honor of the man who would become known as the founder of Detroit a man who was actually born as Antoine Lamay on March 5th of 1658 in a small town known as St. Nicholas de la Grave, which was at his birth in the Duchy of Gascony, but is now in the Departement or French state of Tarn and Garonne. Lamay's birthday was almost exactly 363 years ago as we record this, almost to the day. Antoine, at the time our story opens up, was about 34 years of age and was now known as Monsieur Antoine de la Motte Cadillac. The party in his honor that was referred to earlier in the show was taking place at the official residence of the French governor of New France, which was the Castle of St. Louis in Quebec. The French governor at the time was Monsieur Louis-Hector de Calière which Forrest so excellently pronounced in the cold open. Thank you so much, sir, monsieur, I should say. (laughs) And you know what? A big shout out to a great listener of ours and and good friend of the show, Nancy, who actually gave us this book a while back as a gift, I think for Christmas or whatever, uh, uh, sent us copies of Marie Caroline Watson Hamlin's, it's the four names thing. It's like Jeremy Corbell, Lockyer. And then there's another one I forget, but uh, love those folks. Yeah, so she gave us both copies of Legends of Le Detroit. It's a really great read. Turn of the century, it was 1883, right? So yes. it's a lot of old-timey language, but just fascinating snippets of legends that kind of weaves into the story of the founding of Detroit or Detroit. Yes, and the interesting thing about this book is that for the legend of Le Nain Rouge, it's what gets leaned on the most. And there's good reason for that historically, But it also should be analyzed. It shouldn't just be taken straight on its face value. We'll talk a little bit more about that tonight. Yeah. Coming back to this party that's celebrating Cadillac or Cadillac, this is, again, at the governor's house of New France, de Calière. And he is a legendary figure in his own right in both French and Canadian history and was even while he was alive. There were a lot of players and all the colonization going on in North America. But de Calière is today remembered as being an honorable man who harbored no personal interests and did no political maneuvering in spite of all the power he had. And his claim to fame, however, was successfully negotiating peace between 39 First Nations tribes and New France in August of 1701, just five months after this celebration, this party that we're going to talk about would take place. 
he negotiated this peace by convincing 1,300 representatives of those nations that peace was the way forward. And remarkably, even the Iroquois, who had fought bitterly with the French for control of the Lower Great Lakes region and the St. Lawrence River Valley, they all signed on to this treaty, thanks in large part also to First Nations leaders like Condiaronk, the chief of the Hurons, who had the biggest responsibility in getting everyone to the table, and Owinana, who represented the Iroquois during the talks. The territory being fought over was of huge political significance and trade, and a lot of blood had been shed up until this point, not only between the French and the English, but the First Nations tribes that were aligned with each of those two groups, who fought as proxies for the colonizers. But the peace that de Calier negotiated lasted a full 60 years until New France was ultimately handed over to Great Britain at the end of the Seven Years' War. And we have some context now on the defeated soldiers during the story of La Bête de Gévaudan. Coming home after being defeated and losing all that territory, they come home, they want to make good, and they can't catch La Bête de Gévaudan. So that's why they're wearing dresses out in fields, trying everything to catch the beast. Well, now we come back to Cadillac, or Cadillac. Let's talk a little bit about his background. He actually entered military service at the young age of 17, and he was made lieutenant by 34. Wikipedia has an interesting section on how he became known as Antoine de la Motte Cadillac, though. Apparently, and I'm quoting Wikipedia here, he identified as Antoine de la Motte, a couillet sur de Cadillac. A couillet means squire, and sieur means mm-hmm. sir, so sir squire of Cadillac. And he signed as de la Motte Launay, L-A-U-N-A-Y. Like many immigrants, again, this is Wikipedia, he took advantage of immigrating to the New World to create a new identity, perhaps to conceal the reasons that drove him from France. He was quoted as saying, ne sors pas de son sac, which means I did not create this identity out of nowhere. (laughs) Antoine Lamey likely remembered Sylvestre des Esparbes de Luçon de Goût. Gau. (laughs) God help me on this one. Antoine Lomay likely remembered Sylvestre de Espab de Lucin de Gaulle, Baron of La Motte Bodigue, Lord of Cadillac, Lanay, and Les Motets, advisor to the Parliament of Toulouse. He knew him for at least two reasons. Bardigue, Cadillac, Lonay, and Les Motets are villages and localities close to his birthplace, Saint Nicolas de la Grave. And Antoine's father, Jean Lomay, was a lawyer in the Parliament of Toulouse. So they're saying here that he's drawing on all of these to kind of make this name. You know, as you're telling me that, I'm getting the impression of a Monsieur Lafitte and yes. his identity. It's like, ah, oh, you know what? I'm, uh, I'm Lafitte now. Yes. Not that other guy you might exactly. be thinking That's of a good in point. France. Everybody's changing their names. Yes. Well, here, here's, here's the scenario. The time and place, like I said, context matters so much, and that's what everybody needs to keep in mind. And we're especially talking about all this kind of stuff is that, uh, you know, it's a new, and regardless of uh, what horrible things newcomers did to the people already living here and to the land, it was seen then as a new beginning. And it's like when you're talking earlier about the reputation of Decalier. It was that he wasn't out to scoop up a bunch of land and wealth for himself. He said he was selfless. And uh, a lot of people, though, were there just for that reason. They can start a new life, change an identity, maybe grab some new land, start over. It was very rugged, but they were used to that sort of living then. And these were adventurous types. As in the book, Legends of Les Trois, she writes and calls them voyagers, people who are willing to go on a voyage 
of danger, but also excitement and new beginnings. So that was the time period here in uh, New France. Yeah, and you know, that reminds me of an even older story that we did some time ago about Albert Osman. It was the same kind oh, of thing. Yeah, this was yeah, a time yeah. of adventure where people just right. went out and did whatever. And if they, especially if they had no attachments or they came from a poor family, and he didn't come from a super poor family, but it was not a wealthy family. His father was an assistant magistrate and his mother was a homemaker. So he mm-hmm. kind of made up his background, not unlike Heath Ledger in the movie A Knight's Tale. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And here's something else I learned. Uh, squire apparently is the traditional title of a second son, which I didn't oh, know that okay. until no, I, I know looked that. up the definition of acquire. But the thing about Wikipedia here in this particular entry, and it's something interesting that it points out, is that this whole thing was designed, as we've just discussed, to give him a new name, identity, and noble origin, while also protecting him from being recognized back in France, should his mm-hmm. name make the papers, which it will. And for anyone wondering about the family crest, if you've ever seen a Cadillac, you've seen the Cadillac <laughs> family crest, yeah. which also oh, he apparently go. made up. So <laughs> it, was cre- it was taken from uh, local nobles in the region that he was born in. Uh, there were well, different symbols brought together. That's pretty cool right yeah. there. In some little way, maybe in a way that he could never imagine, pay attention to that phrase, folks, in a way that he could never imagine uh, his name lives on today. Yes. I'm going to give you a little more perspective about his background. And the thing to remember about this is that this is paraphrased from sources that are very friendly to the history related to him. All this information might not be true. But for Mm. now, this is the angle we're going to go with. Well, we're used to that. Yes, we're used to that. So, (laughs) But being a reliable and well-thought-of officer, he was given command of Fort Boad, which I'm not sure how to say in French, B-U-A-D-E. Build, in I would say. Michelin-Mackinac, in what is today known as the UP, or Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Yeah. The small city of St. Ignace, um, forgive me if I'm not saying that the way the locals do, mm. is in this spot now where the fort was, which is now the gateway to the UP for residents of the Lower Peninsula via I-75 across the Mackinac Straits. And from this fort, he was able to control all the fur trading between Missouri, Mississippi, the Great Lakes, and the Ohio Valley. So, again, Mm -hmm. credit to Wikipedia for that little bit of information. Well, it turns out Cadillac became very, very wealthy during this time, but there's historians who think a good portion of that wealth may have come from taking bribes. Mm -hmm. That's just our first hint of nefarious activity that may have lined his pockets. Fort Bod was also set up to facilitate cooperative French and Indian attacks against the Seneca who were allied to the British. And this comes back to what we mentioned earlier about different First Nations being associated with different sides of these factions vying for territory. According to Jesuits in the area, who would turn out to be Cadillac's nemesis, he also Mm. used the sale of brandy to Native Americans to control them possibly, and thereby maintain a level of control of English traders and further hold more power for the French. So according to Jesuits in the area, who would ultimately be his nemesis, he also used the sale of brandy to First Nations people or Native Americans to control them and possibly maintain a level of control of English traders and also hold more power for the French over the English through that method. Right. He took the name Cadillac or Cadillac, from the name of a small town in southwestern France in the Gironde Departement, or French state. And we talked about these departments yeah. in the Beast of Gévaudan, yeah. so if you need Departement a... Departement and arrondissement. 
these are so fun to say. Yes, they are. Period. It's like, uh, what's the dragon? Smaug. Smaug, yes. Yes, please continue. Indeed. Well, that town that uh, Cadillac or Cadillac was actually founded 500 years prior to when he took the name in 1280 by a wow. French lord named Jean I de Grailly to provide a river port for his castle, the castle of Bainange, which had been gifted to him by King Henry III of England. The mm. castle of Bainange itself was built on the site of the ruins of a 200-year-old 11th century castle, and the ruins of Bainage stand to this day and can be visited. In fact, we have a link to an excellent YouTube video of some drone footage shot there, which I was mesmerized with, and links mm. to some pages there in French about traveling there. Of course, COVID had them shut down for a while, but they're probably going to open up again before too long. But still, this comes back around to me being a car guy, that it's kind of crazy to think <laughs> that the name Cadillac that GM made world famous starts with this tiny port city founded in 1280 that wasn't even really part of Antoine LaMay's name originally. Right. It's all been right. co-opted and re-co-opted. And a lot of this information comes from a website that I'll be citing later more clearly, but it's called the Cadillac Database. And yeah. it's an amazing historical look at Cadillac. This website hasn't been touched, I don't think, in at least a decade. But there's still a lot of yeah. really good info on there about all of this information. They actually redesigned that emblem, the Cadillac emblem, mm -hmm. something like 60 mm -hmm. or 70 times. But yeah. it still ultimately is basically the crest that he created when he created this identity. Right. I still love seeing it, though, on the rounded hood of 50s bullet-bumpered Cadillac. Yeah, it's very cool. It's just so classic. It is very But there's classic. a lot of uh, tie-in, Scott. Yes. Who would have thought the Stanley Steamer and the Stanley Hotel? Yeah. REO Speedwagon and Ransom E. Olds. Yeah. And the Oldsmobile. Lots of fun uh, connections there. Getting back to Hamlin's book, Legends of Le Detroit, at the beginning of her chapter on Le Nain Rouge, Hector Louis de Carrière is throwing this party honoring Monsieur La Motte Cadillac in March of 1701. Cadillac, I'm just going to go back to English here, had purportedly done what, you know, because I don't want to drive people crazy. It used to drive me crazy when Geraldo mm -hmm. Rivera would say Nicaragua over and over again. <laughs> he would just slip no, in oh, a, into this uh, really thick accent. Yeah, I know. But you and, should remember this trend, and this is how my brain works. Yeah. Uh, the most important things that I need to remember, even for this show fade away. And yes. in a spot, it's all just vaporized, but some things have stuck with me forever, like the SNL Saturday Night Live skit, because this was a trend. This was happening with news reporters and newscasters and anchor persons. And I remember it was a skit with Jimmy Smits. Yes. Where they'd be talking, you know, like that flat mid-Atlantic accent, and then it's like, Nicaragua. Yeah, Nicaragua. Yes. Antonio Villaregosa. Yes. It's like, it's suddenly, because it became a thing where... He's pretty funny, uh, actually. He's a funny performer. No, he's very, yeah, he's yeah. a great comic actor. People don't always think he's, he does dramatic roles. But the point, I think, was either it was somebody who's pronouncing a, a word from their cultural heritage, and they were expected to get it right, or they were proud to say it the way it should be pronounced in their language, or it was expected of them to do so. So that was a whole trend that happened, I would say, starting in the uh, the mid-90s. Yes, it was prominent. So I, yeah. I think what I'm going to try to do here is in my outline, sometimes <laughs> it says Monsieur in front of it. And yeah, if it does, monsieur. I'm going to say Monsieur Cadillac. Yeah. And if it just says Cadillac, I'm going to say Cadillac. But it's the same guy, just so everybody knows. For those I of you think that's notes, fine. Cadillac we certainly wouldn't Cadillac. be the first presenters uh, uh, blamed for slipping in and out of accents. Yes. If you know what I'm saying. Yes. 
Hi, I'm Ben, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. Well, now we get down to the crux of the beginning of the story of Le Nain Rouge, which is that Cadillac had purportedly done well as a soldier in his various postings and had been commissioned as commandant by Count Pontchartrain. Pontchartrain? Lake Pontchartrain. It's Pontchartrain here. Pontchartrain. Pontchartrain. Oh, I looked at that. Pontchartrain. Did I say, because if you're from Louisiana nowadays, they say Pontchartrain. Yeah. Pontchartrain. But Pontchartrain. Pontchartrain. Like train is trois, trois, yeah, okay, trois, right, yeah. Cadillac had purportedly done well as a soldier in his various postings and had now been commissioned as commandant by Count Pontchartrain, or Pontchartrain, as they say in Louisiana. But he received this commission, and he also was granted 15 square acres wherever he should see fit to establish the French colony of Le Detroit and build a fort, or... Did he? Did he establish the mm. colony of Detroit? I'm not so sure about that. We're going to find out. <laughs> okay. So tonight, one of the things that we get to do is share with you excerpts from Marie Caroline Watson Hamlin's book, Legends of Le Detroit, or Detroit. And this was originally published in 1883, and it's in the public domain now, so we get to read from it. Nobody can stop us. And we have some sections here that uh, really get to the root of the origins of Le Nain Rouge. And we're going to share this first excerpt with you now, which I'm going to make Forrest read. Oh, how delightful. And oh, by the way, Forrest, I, I think you'll enjoy mm-hmm. this particular section. It actually contains a reference to scrying. Oh, yes, I saw that. And uh, I was going to uh, surprise everyone with my uh, pinpoint razor sharp observations, but... Uh, you just said it. So, uh, but see if you can uh, pick it out here in okay. the story. Whilst merriment was at its height, a servant whispered something in the host's ear, and he, turning to the guests, said, Messieurs, an old fortune teller craves to enter. Shall I bid her to do so? All were in that happy frame of mind, eager for any diversion, and a full chorus of, Oui, monsieur, was the response. One of the old gentlemen proposed to change places so as to puzzle the old witch if she had heard anything from the servants. The party had barely changed when the door opened and the figure of an old woman entered. So strange, so bizarre was her appearance that a murmur of surprise greeted her. A woman of unusual height, a dark, swarthy complexion, restless, glittering eyes, strangely fashioned garments yet in harmony with her face. Someone said, what is your name? In a deep, sonorous voice with a slight foreign accent, she answered, They call me Merménique, la sorcière. On her left shoulder was perched a black, meager cat. Half a dozen palms were stretched forth for her inspection. One after another, she read. When she hesitated, the cat would lick her ear, and the more superstitious thought it the devil giving information. Many were the lively sallies as she betrayed some marked peculiarity of the guest and whisperings of amazement, as at times her knowledge seemed almost supernatural. At last, she came to La Montcadillac, who, naturally skeptical, said, Mon bon air, see what you can tell for me of the future. I care not for the past. Earnestly scanning his bold, energetic face, she took a brazen basin, into which she poured from a curiously carved silver vial, which she drew from her breast, a clear, heavy liquid like quicksilver, and holding La Montcadillac's hand, gazed into the basin. Sieur, she said, 
Yours is a strange destiny. A dangerous journey you will soon undertake. You will found a great city which one day will have more inhabitants than New France now possesses. Many children will nestle around your fireside. She paused, and Cadillac, thoroughly interested, bade her continue. Mon Chevalier, I wish you had not commanded me to go on, for dark clouds are arising, and I see dimly your star. The policy you intend pursuing in selling liquor to the savages, contrary to the advice of the Jesuits, will cause you much trouble, and be the cause of your ruin. In years to come, your colony will be the scene of strife and bloodshed. The Indians will be treacherous. The hated English will struggle for its possession. But under a new flag, it will reach a height of prosperity which you never in your wildest dreams pictured. You will bask in a sunnier climate, but France will claim your last sigh. Shall my children inherit my possessions? asked Cadillac, unconsciously giving utterance to the secret desire of his heart. Your future and theirs lie in your own hands. Beware of undue ambition. It will mar all your plans. Appease the non-rouge. Beware of offending him. Should you be thus unfortunate, not a vestige of your inheritance will be given to your heirs. Your name will be scarcely known in the city you founded. Okay. That last line there is a telltale line to me, which we'll talk mm. more about later. But it's very critical, though, to a very specific point that I want to make later. Oh, there's a few in here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which I'm seeing as prediction, as prognostication, you know, judged by history. Yes, but there's there's something to take into account here. But I want to save that. I don't want to I don't want to spoil. Okay. I don't know. Yes, spoilers. Let's... No, no, no. Of course not. I know you hate that. My dog is snoring super loud. I have a new dog, everyone. I'm just going to go ahead. She's crate trained. So she's in this. She's a yeah. puppy. Her name is Nixie. You can see her on our social media and mm. from time to time. But she's in a crate under my desk. We're recording very late. So she's asleep <laughs> and the snoring has increased. Oh, dear. But there's nothing I can do about it. Okay. So to hear the tale from the book, at this point, the witch, the fortune teller, uh, I think she refers to as a fortune teller, the Sybil mm -hmm. also referred to, which yes. is like an oracle, right? Yeah. If you look at uh, Merriam-Webster here, it's a, a prophetess, a fortune teller. Right. She comes in the party. Everyone is really impressed with her. Apparently, Cadillac laughed a little bit about what she said to him. And according to the legend, his wife thought it was very serious. But- right. There's some telltale signs in here about the origins of this story, which again, bring me back to a little bit of the Jersey Devil, what we learned about in that story, the politics uh -huh. and things that are being involved. But there's another huge thing about this to be revealed later. I see. I this see. story indicates that La Motte Cadillac didn't care for the Jesuits because of not only their power, but their criticism of him selling brandy to the First Nations people in the region. Right. Yeah. But there was a ton of money for him to make in alcohol and maybe bribes and fur trading. And as we go on here, we have to wonder a little bit about his true history being whitewashed to a certain extent. Mm. And we'll get more into that as we move forward here. But it's interesting that there was a warning regarding selling booze to the First Nations folks in this story, because that was a big issue that's going to come back to haunt him. Right. In fact, the Jesuits called him Monsieur de Trop or Mr. Too Much. That's how it translates because that's <laughs> what he was doing. But that wasn't necessarily just about what he was selling. It was a general 
it was a general description of him, just hedonistic to a certain extent. And you'll see how that unfolds. So listen to this letter. We have a letter here from the Cadillac database website that I mentioned a few minutes ago. This is pretty amazing. It's at a blog, kind of, at cadillacdb.planeteldorado.com. We'll have a link to the source here in our show notes. And the page that this comes from there is charmingly titled, The Truth About the Cadillac Coat of Arms. And it's pretty fascinating. So what's happening here, this is a letter from the Jesuits to, uh, or one of the Jesuit priests, to their former pupil about Cadillac. And this is what I wanted to read. Under Cadillac's command, things appear to have got out of control at the fort. In a long letter by Jesuit father Etienne Carheil to a former pupil, he said, Our missions are reduced to such extremity that we can no longer maintain them against the infinity of disorder, brutality, violence, injustice, impiety, impurity, insolence, scorn, and insult, which the deplorable and infamous traffic in brandy has spread universally among the Indians of these parts. In the despair in which we are plunged, nothing remains for us but to abandon them to the brandy sellers as a domain of drunkenness and debauchery. He complains bitterly of the officers in command of the fort, who, he says, far from repressing disorders, encourage them by their example and are even worse than their subordinates, insomuch that all our Indian villages are so many taverns for drunkenness and sodoms for iniquity, which we shall be forced to leave to the just wrath and vengeance of God. He insists that the garrisons are entirely useless, as they have only four occupations— First, to keep open liquor shops for crowds of drunken Indians. Secondly, to roam from place to place, carrying goods and brandy under the orders of the Commandant Cadillac, who shares their profits. Thirdly, to gamble day and night. Fourthly, to turn the fort into a place which I am ashamed to call by its right name. He goes on to describe in much detail the swarms of Indian girls who are hired to make it their resort, ending thus, such, Monsignor, are the only employments of the soldiers maintained here so many years. Sounds like Las Vegas. Yeah, it does. And it sounds a little different from Marie Caroline Watson Hamlin's book, which is more glowing in terms of Monsieur Cadillac. I think. This maybe is closer to mm. reality. This letter is pretty interesting. And this Jesuit father is ticked off. The list is just my favorite part of it. Disorder, brutality, violence, injustice, impiety, impurity, insolence, scorn, insult, deplorable. I mean, it's just, <laughs> he can't, mm. there's no more words that he can add about how bad things are at the fort that Monsieur Cadillac uh, has founded. <laughs> it's the, you know, Wild West, except it's the Wild North Midwest of at least the North American portion of the continent. And when you have a frontier peoples and uh, lots of free-flowing alcohol and money and furs, and there stands to be a lot of money made in the sale of such, then that's a lot of times where that stuff leads without any law and order. So they are the law and order, and they're engaged in this. So as you probably gathered by now, based on what the Jesuit father was saying about the fort has, has been built, they are establishing streets for barracks, and Cadillac has decided to call it Fort Pontchartrain, or Pontchartrain, depending on mm. what part mm -hmm. of the world you're in right now. This, I guess, was declared with a clerical ceremony on St. Anne's Day, and that's why it's called St. Anne's Parish, I believe. And the houses were constructed of hewn logs, and at that point, Detroit was founded, and according to... Marie Caroline Watson Hamlin, this is the fortune teller's prediction 
starting to become verified. Mm-hmm. For me, when I think about this, I always think about SimCity because I used to play SimCity a lot. So it's like, okay, now he's building his little city. He's stuck back in early times because when you start that Uh game, you have to start way before any significant technology has come along. I see. So his SimCity is doing really well, though. Settlers are moving in. And Mm -hmm. apparently there was an early census that indicated there were 14 new births a year from 1704 to 1707. So that's not bad. That's as good as any SimCity I've ever made. (laughs) <laughs> and um, so, again, this is Fort Pontchartrain du Détroit, or better translated, Fort Pontchartrain of the Straits, because that's yeah. what it turns out Détroit means. Or also Ville Détroit, and that's D apostrophe E-T-R-O-I-T-S, Town yeah. on the Narrows. The City of the Straits, that yeah, was the, the, original, the, uh, the original name. Something, uh, well, we're talking about the book, though, by Marie Caroline Watson Hamlin. Mm-hmm. There's another name mentioned on the book, uh, James Valentine Campbell, who possibly could be an editor. I'm not, I didn't actually. Yeah, I think that must be on our hard copies. I'm actually, in the Kindle yeah. copy, he's not on there. Oh. So it must be the editor associated okay. with that print version. Yes. So shout out to uh, that gentleman as well. Yes. It's interesting. A lot of people, I'm sure, did not know, unless you're from Detroit, and I'm sure a lot of the uh, Detroiters, I'm not sure when you say multiple people from Detroit, were aware of that because uh, you just hear of Detroit and uh, are not uh, aware of the uh, what the original name meant. Certainly, I had to be reminded. Yeah. And, and the idea of it being the Straits or the Strait also explains the alternate name for Lenon Rouge, which is the demon of the Strait. Right, right. So uh, in 1703, however, it's only two years after it got set up, uh, the fort anyway, and the parish, the first of a few famously devastating fires uh, happened. And in this one, all the records of the town were burned up. In a strange but not necessarily coincidence, the year after that, Cadillac was ordered to return to Quebec. He was being accused of illegally selling alcohol and furs. This is just mm. two years into the establishment of his of his fort and parish. He did eventually serve time in the Bastille, but that was for other crimes, I think. I, I don't know that he actually served time for this. It, it gets a little muddy here. This timeline is complex. But it's interesting to me that right before he's about to be charged with all this bad behavior, everything burns to the ground, including the records. So there's, well, it's a little fishy. Yes. It's a little fishy. <laughs> well, in 1707, actually on March 10th of 1707, Seigneur de Cadillac makes his first land grant to his interpreter, a man named Fafard, quote, stipulating as usual for all his feudal rights, including the acknowledgement of faith, homage, and the planting of a maypole each year, end quote. Maypole was uh, set up for celebrations. It was, I guess, to show that you were excited to be living mm-hmm. there and and uh, and pay tribute to your patron. And the truth is, in one of our prominent researchers in the Astonishing Research Corps, Rue, R-O-O, mm-hmm. found a map of very early Detroit genealogy. And in that map, there is a list of over 31 people who were granted land on that March 10th. It's a pretty fascinating list. And so the question becomes, is Hamlin's book taking liberties with reality here by saying, oh, it was just Fafard? Or is it leaving out the detail, perhaps, that Francois Fafard de Lorme was simply the ceremonial first person to receive a grant? Because he and his brother Jean were both Cadillac's interpreters at the time. But Jean's fromage got left out in the wind because he did not seem to get a lot. So only, right. only his brother did. Well, there, there might be some indication here, Scott, in that uh, the, the second chapter after the initial, you know, chapter five, the, the Maypole, 
when they're granting homage, it says, uh, as he saluted La Molte and turned away, Francois Bolsoron and others who had been granted fiefs offered their homage in turn. So, yeah, he's um, he's getting money from all these folks. Yeah, that's a good point. We're actually going to read some from that section here coming up. And, and when you look at this list that Rue found, it's got 68 names on it of people who were all granted land. But that goes from uh, the initial dates of 17... 17- 07 through 1710. But on that first ceremonial time for when they were having this party for this, it was March 10th, 1707. There were 35 people, including Fafard, and they're exchanging things for uh, levers and souls rent. So listen to this. Michel Mas, March 10th, 1707, for eight livres and eight souls rent and 10 livres for other rights. Jacques Langlois, March 10, 1707, for six livres and 10 souls rent and 10 livres for other rights. And then, of course, Fafard, the translator, or one of his two translators, March 10, 1707, for four livres and 10 souls rent and 10 livres for other rights. It's not a ton of money, but you can basically see here's what's happening. This land was granted to me. Now I'm going to give it out to all you folks, but you people have to pay me even though I got these 15 acres for free, probably. And that's part of how he starts to make this money, giving this land or the grants over to these folks who are moving into his lovely little town or fort. Pretty standard medieval practice. Yes, exactly. Right, where the where the people uh, have to pay money back to, or it could be in the form of uh, produce, I guess, back to the noble person who owns the land. And here's a section that talks about the act, this actual day and the events happening here from uh, Marie-Caroline Watson Hamlin's book. In front of the Seigneur de Cadillac's manor, a great crowd had assembled, and from the eager expectancy written on every face, it was evident that some unusual event of interest was to take place. Slowly, the form of Monsieur Fafad, the interpreter, was seen approaching with a stately, dignified step. Each movement measured by the importance of the act of which he was to play the part of chief actor. The French understand perfectly that delicate art of investing even a trifling circumstance with an entourage of interest and display which gratifies their national vanity and love of glory. Monsieur Fafard knocked on the Seigneur de Cadillac's door, which was opened by the major domo. He inquired for Monsieur Lamotte Cadillac, who immediately stepped forth arrayed in his blue uniform and cavalier hat with white plumes. Monsieur Fafard uncovered his head and, falling on his knees, rendered fealty in the following manner. Monsieur Dudetois, Monsieur Dudetois, Monsieur Dudetois. Uh-oh. Now he's going to appear in your bathroom mirror at Dr. night. Dr. Detroit's yeah. coming now. <laughs> I bring you faith and homage, which I am bound to pay you on account of my fief of Delorme, which I hold as a man of faith of your seigneury of Detroit, declaring that I offer to pay my seigneurial and feudal dues in their season, and demanding of you to accept me in faith and homage as aforesaid. As he saluted La Motte and turned away, Francois Bosseron and others who had been granted fiefs, uh, to your point, Forrest, yeah, offered their right. homage in turn. Cadillac's house stood on the line of the present Jefferson Avenue, present being 1883, before it had been sloped down to the Chemin du Rhône. A spacious galerie adorned the front of the manor overlooking the smooth-cut lawn and majestic river. A hole had been dug in the center of the lawn, and a tall, stately pole lay ready for raising. The branches had been trimmed off except a little clump at the top called the bouquet, and to this had been nailed a party-colored pole from which the royal flag, with the fair fleur-de-lis of France, floated. Smooth and white was the pole, 
and to its sides blocks were nailed to allow a person to ascend. The firing of a gun was the signal to begin the ceremony. The Seigneur Cadillac had seated himself on the galerie surrounded by his wife, children, and officers. A delegation from the habitants approached and bowing low asked him permission to plant the maypole in front of his house. The request was graciously acceded to and Father Deniao knelt and offered up a prayer that the festivities might pass without accident. The pole, impelled by strong sinewy arms, slowly rose while the voyageurs broke out in their wild and inspired song, Viva la Canadienne et ses jolies you do. The Seigneur de la Motte Cadillac then advanced hat in hand and smilingly accepted the pole and asked all to join him in watering it that it might flourish. A cask of eau de vie was tapped. Cups and flasks of every design and shape were passed around, and Cadillac raised his silver goblet and pledged the king in the health of all present. An agile youth ascended the pole and shouted, Viva le Roy! Viva le Seigneur Cadillac du Détroit! Then all caught the refrain, Grand Dieu sauve le Roy! So there's a poem here, Grand Dieu vinge le Roy, Viva le Roy! Que toujours glorieux, Louis Victorio, vois ses ennemis toujours soumis, vive le roi. The translation is, great God avenge the king, long live the king, that always glorious, Louis Victorious. See his enemies, always submissive, long live the king. Hmm. Uh, and that's a reference to the king of France at the time, Louis Fourteenth, who, by the hmm. way, is the longest reigning king in European history to this day at 72 years and 110 days, although uh, Queen Elizabeth II is rapidly closing in. On, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But she would not be a king. So that would still, <laughs> that would be a different record, but still. I see. <laughs> but uh, she has uh, almost been in her position for 72. I think she's 68 or 69 years right now. Yeah. Did she beat Queen Victoria yet? Uh, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. Queen yeah. Victoria. I, I remember her being one of the longest reigning monarchs. 63 years hmm. and seven months. For Queen Victoria. Mm -hmm. But Queen Elizabeth II is currently at 69 years. So mm -hmm. uh, she's still a few years behind King Louis here. But even if she passes him, she will still be a queen and not a king. So she's not going to break his record <laughs> on the king part. <laughs> he's safe. Yeah, the son yeah, king safe. is safe. He's, got, he's, okay. he's in good shape there probably for a much longer time. Well, after all of this, there was dancing and the blackening of the maypole by discharging weapons with gunpowder only in them. And uh, that maypole would be left up for a long time after this for good luck. So now we come to the part of the story where Monsieur de la Motte Cadillac actually encounters Lanon Rouge. Peace, contentment, and quiet happiness seem to reign over this little Arcadia. So thought Cadillac as at twilight, after the people had dispersed, he strolled with his wife in the king's garden. Human nature grows more communicative at this hour. The thoughts which find no utterance in the broad light of day now glide forth from the heart. He told her that his dreams of ambition were about to be realized, notwithstanding the obstacles of his enemies. His colony was prosperous, and his children would inherit a princely portion, that his name would become historic and illustrious. Thus were they talking when two weary travelers homeward bound passed so near them that fragments of their conversation fell on their ears. 
Yes, says Jean-Baptiste, our seigneur and the Doblanc carry themselves very high with their silver plate and fine clothing, whilst we poor habitants must pay double for everything, even our petit coup d'eau de vie, expressing a little of the communistic sentiments of the present time. Things cannot run very long thus, answered his companion. My wife saw a few days ago Le Petit en Rouge, and the rest was lost as the speakers disappeared. Cadillac's wife grasped her husband's hand convulsively and said, Did you not hear? Le Petit en Rouge is the dreaded Nal Rouge. What of that? said Cadillac. Beware of the Nal Rouge was what the prophetess told you. When he should come, misfortune was nigh. Bah! laughed Cadillac. Have you not forgotten that nonsense of a silly old fortune teller? Let us return home. Annoyed himself at the remembrance, and doubly so at his wife for unconsciously giving utterance to his vague uneasiness, they proceeded in silence. Suddenly across their path, trotting along the beach, advanced the uncouth figure of a dwarf, very red in the face, with a bright, glistening eye. Instead of burning, it froze. Instead of possessing depth, emitted a cold gleam like the reflection from a polished surface, bewildering and dazzling all who came within its focus. A grinning mouth, displaying sharp, pointed teeth, completed this strange face. It is the Nal Rouge, whispered Cadillac's wife. And before she had time to say more, Cadillac's ill nature had vented itself in striking the object with a cane he held in his hand, saying, Get out of my way, you red imp! A fiendish, mocking laugh pierced the still night air as the monster vanished. You have offended him, said Madame. Your impetuosity will bring you and yours to ruin. You were told to coax him, to beware of annoying this demon, and in your ungovernable temper you do just otherwise. Misfortune will soon be our portion. Nice, very dramatic. Yeah. yeah, well, very wait, well done. are we back on the air? Or, I lapsed into a uh, into a dreamlike state where I well, was. Well, uh, I mean, that's that portion of that story is very enthralling. I think she does a pretty good job uh, writing this out in the in the style and prose of her time, re Caroline Watson Hamlin, and that's what makes it so readable because it is dramatic. But also, I was going to say earlier, uh, you know, when you read the passage, which of course we're not going to attempt because it's like uh, fifteen different uh, French names, all of antiquity, and uh, it'd be really hard and uh, useless for us to get through. But I was going to say about these passages, like, and I don't think she made up a lot of this. I think she did her research, uh, as she claims in the front of the book that she did her best from records. But of course, she's relaying oral tradition of stories passed down and the art of storytelling. It's impressive, though, that she lists so many people like, well, if you want to look this up, here they are. And they founded this city or had something to do with it. So they were here real people of the time. Not just a bunch of like, well, there's a bunch of guys over there. You, you don't, don't bother looking up. You'll, you'll never find them. She actually died at a fairly young age. So she was wow. really well informed considering how young she was when she probably wrote this. So, Right, right. Well, this is very interesting because now he has mocked Le Nain Rouge. And the warning is that his worst nightmares are going to come true. There'll be nothing for right. his kids to inherit. He has a lot of kids. They have six daughters and seven sons, mm. 13 mm -hmm. kids. And, uh, you know, this there's going to be a great city in this place you started someday, but not by yeah. your hand, you greedy jackhole. <laughs> That's essentially what Lanon Rouge, I love that after he 
beat him right. to the side with the cane, laughter could be heard because it's like, all right. It's the devil. Yes, of course there's evil. That's the the origin of the bwahaha, where you spell it with a B and the W and the A. Yes, yes, But here's the thing. Watson Hamlin is describing a paranormal encounter with yeah. a supernatural being, essentially, as told as folklore. But you could probably go on uh, Jim Harold's campfire and hear somebody saying that they ran into somebody exactly of that description. Mm -hmm. They vanished and then they heard laughter, yeah. disembodied. Yeah. So you and I know now that mm, there's a lot of credible people with weird stories like this. And then sometimes, yeah, there's misfortune that happens after that. And of course, we attribute that to some encounter with something we wished we hadn't seen. Well, the table has been set. He is now ignoring this curse. It's a curse not only on him, but the question is, is it a curse for the city, which is still maybe not quite a city. It's Fort Pontchartrain, you know, mm -hmm. so, or Pontchartrain. So there's some question there about that, by the way, which we'll come back to in a minute. But now it's time to talk about, you know, the cost. What cost is he going to pay? Listen to this brief section from pages uh, 35 of the Kindle edition of Marie-Caroline Watson Hamlin's book, Legends of Le Détroit. Cadillac, shortly afterward, visited Montreal. He was arrested through the intrigues of his enemies and was compelled to sell his seigniory in Détroit to pay for his trial. He was removed to Louisiana as governor, but died at Castle Saracen in France. His children never inherited an acre of his vast estates. His colony, for the next hundred years, was the scene of strife, war, and massacre. Its flag changed five times. Under that of the Republic, it reached the glorious prosperity which the fortune teller had predicted. The Nain Rouge in the mystic past was considered the banshee, or demon, of the city of the Straits. And whenever he appeared, it was a sure sign of impending evil. The night before Dalzell's ill-fated attack at Bloody Run, he was seen running along the shore. And in 1805, when the city was destroyed by fire, many an old habitant thought they caught a glimpse of his malicious face as he darted through the burning buildings. On a foggy morning before Hull's cowardly surrender of Détroit, he was seen, but since then he has never reappeared, having, it is so to be hoped, accomplished his mission. But the tradition still lingers among the old habitants that should misfortune ever threaten the bonny city of the Straits, the Nain Rouge will appear again to give the signal of warning. Hmm. Again, never to appear again, that's as of 1883. And secondly, I think it's really significant that she says, the Nain Rouge will again appear to give the signal of warning. Mm -hmm. That idea will come back, that it's a warning. So this information, though, it might be incomplete. History is going to have you believe this was the beginning of Monsieur de la Motte-Cadillac's downfall. And on the surface, that seems true. He was charged with trafficking bourbon and fur and convicted and spent time in jail and struggled to regain control of Le Détroit. Yeah, but who hasn't? Yeah. <laughs> Are you defending this guy? <laughs> I no, I'm just bourbon and furs and uh, you know a little jail time. Yeah, yeah. don't be that surprised. Okay? Well, in a strange form of punishment, he was in fact made governor of Louisiana, where he again yeah. in Louisiana fell out of favor with locals for wheeling and dealing. I think he only lasted about two years there before they had had enough of him. And then upon <laughs> returning to France, from there he was yeah. arrested and jailed 
sure, but mm-hmm. he only served five months and he was released. And on top of that, he managed to get back pay for lost time governing in Louisiana, as well as a medal <laughs> of honor, some uh, oh, knight yeah. type of medal. Yeah. So All that happened to me after a Mardi Gras once. Yeah, you know, right. <laughs> they'd had enough of me. But here's the other thing. The prediction was right. He would uh, live in a sunny climb, in a yes. warm, sunny climb. But yeah. not end up there. Yeah, because he went back to France in the end where he died. But I mean, it does feel like a little bit of an upswing, at least for a minute. He's like, oh, I'll get my yeah. payback. I'm going to. But we can't even begin to imagine the politics at play here. But on the mm-hmm. surface, it seems like he was taking advantage of literally everything he could at every moment and pretty much getting away with it. And when he didn't get away with it, he was only symbolically punished for his misdeeds. But. It's true that ultimately he did, as you just said, return to France with no fortune whatsoever to speak of, and true as well Mm. that he left very little, if any, inheritance for his kids. Manon Rouge had been right, but there's so much more to this story. So moving forward with it, and a good deal of this information comes from the Cadillac database that I mentioned earlier, and and it features some uh, background compiled by Canadian historian Suzanne Boivin-Somerville, or Boivin, so, yeah, boy, even boy even, uh like yeah. Derek Chauvin, which is, should, is uh, oh, yeah. on trial right oh, now. That should okay. be Chauvin, I imagine. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. like that boy van. She is an expert on the reality of Antoine de la Motte-Cadillac, among mm. all things regarding the colonization of that part of the world. And there is a fair amount of lesser known things to report on him. The first thing to consider is that he didn't really found Detroit. He founded a yeah. settlement. Fort Pontchartrain of Les Détroits, or the Straits. It was just a small settlement for trade that wound up being in the same spot that the city of Detroit would be established and become not only the automotive center of the world, but the fourth largest city in the United States in 1920 and still Mm -hmm. the 14th largest metropolitan area today with over 4.3 million people as of 2019. However, that's down 61 million from its peak in 1950 at the Mm. height of American automobile manufacturing domination. But coming back to his founding of Detroit, the French crown didn't even acknowledge that Detroit was a colony until 1706, five years after Cadillac surveyed the shores of the river to decide where he would build that fort and perish. Now, let me ask you this. How large of a city in, uh, well, let's see, it, it, uh, you know, fairly well developed to the West here, uh, was Detroit considered in 1883 when Watson Hamlin wrote this out? This is going to be a little bit of a factor that we discuss as, as far as like the uh, the truth of the story, what came true, uh, you know, what she could have guessed and uh, what was off the mark here or what was kind of remarkable about it. It's funny you should ask that, and I'm going to mm-hmm. pretend that I didn't just stop for a minute to look this up, but... <laughs> I'll pretend to. Let's pretend yeah. together. In 1880, okay. the population of Detroit was 116,340 people, mm-hmm. putting it as the, at the time, the 18th largest city in the United States. A mid-sized city. You it's, know. it's doing pretty good, yeah. It's doing okay, yeah. Considering that it was a fort, you know, and then right. it turned into this. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, we should talk about this some more moving forward because I can tell okay. that we're going to butt heads on a certain portion of this story. Uh-oh. I look forward to it. But uh, <laughs> it, it turns out that Cadillac borrowed 
in air quotes, a lot of his background. It reminded me of Catch Me If You Can, which I just showed my son about a week ago. And uh, Boy, we reference that movie quite a bit. Well, you know, it turns out in Astonishing Legends, there's a lot of Frank Abagnales out there at the root of these stories. There's, yeah, well, we're, yeah, we're here They're to out there. shine a light on the con artistry. Yes. When we find it. Cadillac's parents were not nobility. His father mm-hmm. was an assistant magistrate and his mother a homemaker. Her birth name yeah. was actually... Jean Peshagou, P-E-C-H-A-G-U-T. Right. But when he created his new identity as Cadillac or Cadillac, he changed her name to Jean Malenfant. And there are Mm -hmm. some historians who wonder if this was a nod to himself and his own personality as Malenfant or evil child. (laughs) Born and raised in South Detroit. There is also speculation that a great deal more about his background was conjured, although it was clear from military briefs he prepared in some cases that he did seem to have a good education, although some of the briefs also were considered disastrous and ineffective. So there was a whole thing there, again, catch me if you can, where it seemed like he was faking his military background, and there are some folks that thought that he borrowed these records, and I can read this here actually from the database there. In 1682, at the age of 24, while allegedly serving in the military at Thionville in northeastern France, where he also allegedly earned a commission, he began to call himself Cadillac. It was customary in those days for aspiring young officers to adopt a so-called nom de guerre, Mm. or name of war. The name Cadillac had a good military (laughs) ring to it. Let me Um, see your war face. There was a woman (laughs) named Jean Cadillac, or Jean Cadillac, who has uh, done a lot of research on the family history, because she's related, of Antoine LeMay, his birth name, alias de la Motte Cadillac. And she suggests that LeMay may have even borrowed for himself the military records of an older brother. Well, there you go. Fake it till you make it. And how many times uh, today does this still go on where somebody at least makes the news for fluffing up a resume? You know, well, it happens yeah. quite a bit still. People just do that. He's he's going pretty far here. I mean, he supposedly made up the family crest as well. The very crest that adorns every Cadillac today is a many times mm-hmm. modified version of the original. He, I guess, borrowed that from a noble neighbor back home. Yeah. This information, it comes again from the Cadillac database. Quote, it was relatively common for adventurous Frenchmen immigrating to the New World in those days to usurp the noble title and armorial bearings of true blue-blooded noblemen back home who, it was assumed, would never find out about it. (laughs) There was no internet in those days, it says, in parentheses. Lamey was no exception. He borrowed the name La Motte, possibly on account of its consonants, with Lamey. He -hmm. took over also the noble ancestry associated with the La Motte name. In fact, he purloined the name, title, and coat of arms of Baron Sylvester of Esparbe de Luçon, Lord of La Motte, formerly La Motte, Bardige, a feudal manor located near Toulouse, France. Ooh, that is a uh, moose-bouche mouthful there. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. Now, here's what follows are some dates that come from an amazing table or timeline created by noted French historian Jean Boutonnet and discovered by us again at the Cadillac Database website. Mr. Boutonnet published a French book entitled La Motte Cadillac in 2001. In 1710, he was appointed governor of Louisiana. And again, keeping in mind that he started the settlement with a fort in the parish in 1701, And then it burned to the ground in 1703, right before he was charged with selling brandy and furs illegally. It burned Mm. down. So then it it comes back, but it wasn't even recognized officially as a colony by the crown until 1706 or 7. 
Now here we are. He's wrecking everything again. At 1710, they move him out to Louisiana just to get him away from yep. whatever's happening in Le, Le Detroit. So historians had said that that was a move to put him somewhere less dangerous. By 1715, he was relieved of his duties in Louisiana, but he kept scamming for two more years before going back to France in 1717, where he was thrown in jail, but again, only for five months. Yeah. Somehow, again, Frank Abagnale style, he managed to get back pay for his governorship and also procure a Cross of St. Louis, a Knight's Military Order. His rights over Detroit were fully restored after an aggressive campaign by him on May 19, 1722. On June 25th, barely one month later, he sold those rights to a Canadian named Jacques Baldry de la Marche. Again, credit to the Cadillac Database blog for compiling mm -hmm. all this. And he used that money to buy himself the governorship and mayor's office of Castle Saracen back in France, where he eventually died in October of 1730 at the ripe old age of 72. Hey, not bad for back then. No, he, he went pretty far. Now, there are some amazing photos and details on the Cadillac database. The website itself, like I said, is a little old. The information is outstanding, so you have to visit it. Uh, I want to credit the author of all the information there, uh, which it's a little tricky to figure out who it is, but I believe it's managed by a member of the Cadillac and LaSalle Club named Jean-Claude Franchitti which is F-R-A-N-C-H-I-T-T-I. -T -T -I. It doesn't appear to have been updated in quite some time, but I'm glad. And we will not have there. a link to this on the, on the website. Um, to what? Oh, what you just mentioned here, the Cadillac. Of course we will. Okay. We always do. One of these days you're going to say, you are going to tell me and the audience, no, I'm not, no, I'm not no, doing that. No, we're not putting a link up, but no. You're going to find it yourself. I was interested in this guy, Jacques Baldry de la Marche, because you don't yeah. hear that name. And it turns out, you know, I looked him up. I found this Wikipedia entry. It's like the whole Wikipedia. I can read the whole Wikipedia page right now. It's like <laughs> three paragraphs. Yeah. Jacques yeah. Baldry de la Marche uh, baptized 13th of September, 1676, who lived, I guess, to 1738, was the son of a Canadian craftsman from Trois-Rivières who moved to France at some point in his youth. There is little information about Jacques Baldry de la Marche. He returned to North America about 1723, acquired the rights to certain properties in Detroit. These were in the name of Antoine Lamay de la Motte sur de Cadillac and consisted of several buildings and various other land. An attorney, Etienne Veron de Grandmisnel from Trois-Rivières, took the appointment to carry out the legalities of this extensive acquisition. Opposing major aspects of the transaction were Philippe de Rigaud Vaudrel and Alphonse de Tonti. I'm not sure about who Philip is, but I know that Alphonse was the original partner with Cadillac when he set up the settlement. Alphonse de Tonti? Yes, he was a longtime partner of, mm -hmm. so it, it makes sense that he would oppose this. He probably wanted to maintain a relationship with whoever right. controlled Detroit and he would lose it in this deal. Right. And, and tell us again how Lamarche, Jacques Baudry de Lamarche is connected to all this. Well, he is the one that bought all the rights that Cadillac was able to get back right, right. to Detroit uh, later after this apparently aggressive campaign. Yeah. He seems protected. Cadillac does. There, there's something yes. about this guy just not getting in trouble that is a little mysterious to me. Right. Um, well, as we, we we said in my last job, uh, someone's got the chicken photos. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. yeah. Le coke. All right. Well, so, uh, well, no, you're right. I mean, because what would be interesting to, to know, it's like, uh, again, I'm so reminded, this is 100 years later, by the way, yeah. uh, in, in, the, uh, in the first decade of uh, the 19th century with Lafitte, is that there's a lot of intrigue going on. Bad guys are good guys. 
good guys get shoved aside or turn bad or or whatever or just end up looking good in the uh, aftermath of history. Yeah. And so this is a lot of intrigue going on here and you don't really know what's going on the inside. I guess like we don't, you know, I mean, we have a better idea today what we think is going on, but there's so much, you know, backdoor behind the scenes, the smoke filled room kind of stuff that's going on. You just wonder like how history shakes out really uh, that we all don't really know about. Yeah. Except for the uh, the inside baseballers here. Yeah, this is a good lesson in second-guessing everything you read because you're not going to get, mm-hmm. you know, it's like they, they joke about history's written by the winners. It really is. Yeah. And yeah. I came across more than a few websites in our research for this that said that Cadillac was considered a hero until a more liberal approach to history and um, dismantling revisionist history started to emerge in the 1950s. And then you began to hear the truth of his background. You know, in terms of looking at the history of this legend, we don't have a ton to fall back on because the story of Le Nain Rouge seems to start with Antoine de la Moutcadillac. But surely Mm. there is more to this story than a fortune teller entering a party and creating the Red Dwarf. (laughs) I mean, every story's got to start somewhere, but nine times out of 10, as we can tell you, the story is derivative of a pre-existing bit of folklore, and there's no reason not to think that's happening here too. Turns out it might be. So again, going back to Rue, one of our researchers in the Astonishing Research Corps, she found some fascinating information here. And, you know, the, the the first thought about all this is that there there has to be a connection to First Nations folklore. And we're going to talk about that in great detail here in a few minutes as we discuss the more current view on Lanon. But before we get to that, look at this reference Rue came up with just in a few short weeks of research. And again, so take it with a grain of salt. But this is the earliest printed reference online of Lanon Rouge by that name. And it's not from North America at all but the Normandy region of France. And this is an interesting source from October of 1881. And this is where I want to bring up a point. The book that Marie-Caroline Watson Hamlin wrote, Legends of Le de Trois, where the bulk of this legend comes from, was written 180 years after everything happened. Mm-hmm. It's my contention and we'll come into this in conclusions, that it's very easy to insert a prediction of the future into a book that you write almost 200 years after something happened. Right. It's easy to go back and say, oh, yeah, we predicted all this stuff that I already know happened. It's, I mean, it's straight mm-hmm. out of uh, Back to the Future 2 and Biff with the sports almanac. So I'm just, I'm just saying, <laughs> you're, she's time traveling a uh, little yeah. bit. She's saying, this right. is the crazy story of all the predictions that were made that I already know came true because I've lived past that period. That's all I'm saying. Right at this moment, I'm trying to remember if something in in the telling of Hamlin's account mm-hmm. where she not I wouldn't say it admits, but because you know, that's this is not Hamlin making the prediction. This is the fortune teller. She and, invented the fortune that, teller. Hold on. Just okay. hang with me here for a second. Because that's not really what the question is about. It, it, this is more of a narrative, uh, you could call it a fictional question here to you, is that I, I can't remember if there's one part of it, and I'll have to go back here, where uh, Hamlin says, well, this part didn't really come true, but the rest of it did. And I'm kind of flipping through my copy of the book here. Oh, yeah, I think this was the the line here, which I thought was, uh, it's a good little bit, if it is totally all fiction, it makes you wonder. Hamlin says, yes, uh, Cadillac uh, christened Fort Pontchartrain, 
The 26th, uh, St. Anne's Day, with a big ceremony, clerical ceremony, was the first uh, founding of the church. The first church uh, west of the Alleghenies was laid. There was a stockade. It started to come together, is what she's saying here in summing up. And then uh, St. Louis Street was laid out in line with the barracks for the troops. Houses were constructed of uh, rough-hewn logs. So it's like the founding of every Western town that, you know, at least in, in my part of the woods, you're familiar with. And she ends it by saying the fortune teller's prediction, or at least part of it, was verified. This is what I'm saying. It's a little bit of a get-out-of-jail, uh, a bit of a narrative uh, license here where she says, well, look, the fortune teller's, you know, her, her uh, prediction, at least for that part of it, is verified. I'm not saying it all is. I just thought it was a nice touch there for her. She's not saying, like, everything I, the fortune teller said was true. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I think she's a skilled writer. Yeah, I don't think yeah. she's not a good writer, but I think she's also, you know, it's like me well, going back and predicting the mall that I know was built 20, <laughs> you know, 10 miles from my house here. I know what year right. it was built, and I could write that there was a fortune teller at a party three years before it was built who said that the mall was going to be built. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, I'd be way more impressed if I know. she had written this and published it before it all happened. Right, right. We'll see. I don't know if you want to talk about this now. I might as well get out of the way because I'm certainly going to forget here yeah. <laughs> as we pass on. It's like, okay, well, the thing that struck me at the first reading of this passage and of the uh, predictions here was that, of course, according to Hamlin in 1883, she's taking as the, the history uh, that his city would fail or, or come upon some very rough, violent times. All of that stuff happened before she wrote the book, though. Yeah, but here's All what I'm saying. Is, is, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. She's yeah. just, before thinking about that, Scott, what I'm saying is that as soon as I read that, it's like, oh, is she talking about, like, early 90s Detroit? Because it had risen to a degree which he would not imagine, and certainly it did in his, you know, in her time, and that's what she could be talking about. But Detroit becomes the fourth largest city in America, the hub of automotive manufacturing, Motown, all these great things about a terrific American city built up so high and then come crashing down to where, you know, uh, it files chapter nine. And uh, goes bankrupt to a degree. And, uh, you know, you and I were talking about this before we uh, we started the research or while uh, during it. So, you know, we've uh, both worked with uh, film crews and I had one go out and I used to work a lot with automotive sales training. And uh, so Detroit was a was a real hot spot. Kobo, the uh, the uh, convention center there, a lot of events happen and people who weren't familiar with Detroit in that era were freaked out because you go downtown and a whole skyscraper was boarded up. They were just like, what? How could it fall into such ruin? So getting back to my point here with the prediction is that, yeah, she would be very easy for her to say this and like, well, most of it came true and, and or most of it's verified. And a few details I can't, they're not important. But was the prediction uh, so much grander and so much truer in the 20th century? Well, I mean, it burnt to the ground twice, right. both times prior to her writing the book that she yeah. was quite familiar with, burnt completely to the ground, the whole entire city. To me, yeah. that's as catastrophic yeah. as what happened in the 90s. And it's, <laughs> well, you know, because yeah. at that point in that scale, when you think about the Great Fire, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, that happened in 1805. She was would have right. been well aware of that. And so when you look at the population of Detroit in 1805, mm -hmm. when the fire happened, I think it was only 600 people, but it was the entire yeah. town. 
I'm sure there was continued strife in the ensuing years between 1805 and 1883. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to connect it to the downfall that Detroit had in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, No, I I see what you're saying. I I think for me, it's like uh, you look at other cities where uh, massive devastation happens, certainly the the Great Chicago Fire, uh, the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. And I think when there is inherent prosperity or means of that in the area, these places get built up again. And and yes, now Detroit is seeing a comeback. It's crawling back from, uh, you know, the financial ruin. And things are happening, as we both saw. We went to uh, uh, Macomb County uh, Community College. Great places that are really trying to come back from it. I'm just wondering, again, trying to line this up, and this is strictly from a prediction. uh, We we haven't even talked about the scrying part yet, of just uh, somebody making a prediction. And like I said, this happens quite a bit, too, just in fiction. Of course, now the big trope is like, look how many times the Simpsons predicted the future. It's like, some things are similar, some things are right on. It's not totally spot on all well, the time. Well, all you but... need is cynicism in several hundred episodes, and you're going to predict a lot of things. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. That's, <laughs> that's what that's comedy what the, writers uh, do, right? <laughs> yeah, com- writers, writers. I mean, look Somebody at Idiocracy. astute. We're living it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not yet uh, pooping in my easy chair waiting for online beer to come out of a tube, but yeah. I just have that dream. Yeah. Maybe one day. Uh, but here's my point. It's like, it's interesting to make these predictions about the founding of a city that, yes, as you said at this time, it's uh, over 150 years old. Could she see the nature of it if it was based on a true thing? Because what I'm getting at was, I think the prediction and the setup of the story of the fortune teller, maybe those were real people that were there, the, the actual names, but there was no fortune teller that came by. But I wonder then, because uh, of the creature, the second part of the story which is she can make a prediction about this and that, but Hamlin is actually including the sighting of this paranormal creature Yes, as part of it. So what, I, what I'm saying is if uh, you're kind of going out on a limb here, if you're claiming this is nonfiction, but she's not. I think in her foreword, she's saying, look, these are just oral traditions handed out from generation to generation. Right. Somebody should collect these and preserve them because they will be lost, and that's what I'm doing. And I and I researched as much as I could where I could. I think I did a good job. That's kind of the impression I'm summing up from her. Hi, this is Hannah in Baltimore. When I'm not howling at the moon on Friday the 13th with Mikey, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. Circling back to where we are, you know, chronologically in our story, and this is a good segue for that. Mm-hmm. This goes, again, back to one of our uh, researchers in the Astonishing Research Corps who found this source from October of 1881. And this is 180 years, again, after Cadillac's encounter. But it's interestingly, it's two years before uh, Marie Caroline Watson Hamlin's book was right. published. And this is pretty amazing to us. Again, thanks, Rue, for digging this up. Uh, This comes from a newspaper called The Christian Union, published by the New York and Brooklyn Publishing Company. And this is volume 24, number 15, October 12th, 1881. The article starts on page 338, which I think is a reference to the volume number because it's only the fourth page of this particular paper. And it's entitled, Was It Non Rouge? And it has a byline to Oscar Fay Adams. Now, Oscar Fay Adams is an interesting character I hadn't heard of until this. He was a United States editor and author, born in Worcester, Massachusetts, where he was educated in secondary schools and graduated from the New Jersey State Normal School. He taught classes in English and literature, and after 1880, wrote for periodicals. So 
Adam's story in this paper centers around the town of Dieppe, uh, which I'm not sure I'm saying that right. It's D-I-E-P-P-E in Normandy, and it's on the coast in the nearly the most northern part of France. And the article is long, but it starts out talking about how beautiful the town is before settling in on the life of a man in an area of town called Le Polet. And the man's name is Edmond Renault. He is a man who would cross himself with holy water every morning out of fear of a local malicious sprite known as Le Non Rouge. So this is literally the exact phrase, Le Non Rouge, mm-hmm. appearing in a folkloric story from Normandy two years prior to the publication of Legends of Le Détroit. And it says, quote, he is quite certain that if this precaution of crossing himself with holy water were neglected, Non Rouge would then have power to play all manner of uncomfortable pranks upon him during the day following, end quote. So the story unfolds to detail how the locals feel that the two worst things to have for luck on a fishing boat are a cat or a priest. <laughs> and uh, no sooner are they discussing this when a gray kitten appears on the boat. I'm summing this up. Le non rouge, they yell. But because their version of non rouge is a possible shapeshifter, like all of mm-hmm. the ones we've discussed, actually, they must treat the kitten well out of fear that it was not placed by non rouge on the vessel, but it's non rouge himself. Mm-hmm. The story was apparently a big deal in town about the cat, because if I'm reading the article correctly, when the vessel put to sea, there were no fish to be found either, and she had to return. Monsieur Reynaud was so upset about Non Rouge that he told his 16-year-old granddaughter, Sophie, at the time, that he was lucky to have returned alive from the trip. So whatever's going on here, this is a spirited, mischievous, shape-shifting being of some kind thought by many in the area to bring horrifically bad luck, although the article cites there were plenty of non-believers as well who thought it was all ridiculous. But the overarching point here is that the very phrase non rouge precedes Hamlin's book by two years, which is the most cited source of the origin of the legend. So I thought that was fascinating because that's pointing to not just a similar being, you know, paranormal or supernatural being, but the actual identical name although there's no mm-hmm. real description there's no like red dwarf that goes along with it but the name is Lenon rouge which means yeah. red dwarf so very generally in terms is talk of uh, the little people yes and every culture seems to have little people so whether you call that a dwarf uh, and, uh, and the various colors that are associated with them uh, you know like in ireland of course it's green so the the leprechaun wears green there are colors that uh, are associated with it, it, but, you know, he seems to be red-faced. Uh, red is his color. But this little person, Mythos, is everywhere. Everybody has them. Uh, the Fey folk, the we folk, whatever you want to call it, they're everywhere. Well, and that connects back to the Lutin or Lutines, uh, which is this interesting thing about the Nain Rouge's Mm-hmm. In this story, he may be thought of as a lutan, which is a type of hobgoblin, which are amusing house spirits that have common ground with others we've mentioned on the show from other parts yeah. of Europe. So Wikipedia categorizes all the following on this list. Brownies, elves, fairies, gnomes, goblins, hobgoblins, imps, leprechauns, pixies, <laughs> pucks, and sprites. These are some yeah. fun lists we're going to do tonight. Uh-huh. There's also a poem. Listen to this. This is from a poem. This is from Wikipedia right here. A French fairy tale, Le Prince Lutin written in 1697 by Marie-Catherine de Aulnoy, has a description of the, quote, air, water, and terrestrial lutin, end quote. 
Quote, you are invisible when you like it. You cross in one moment the vast space of the universe. You rise without having wings. You go through the ground without dying. You penetrate the abysses of the sea without drowning. You enter everywhere, though the windows and the doors are closed. And when you decide to, you can let yourself be seen in your natural form. In the hmm. story, there's a red hat with two feathers that makes the Lutan invisible. It sounds interdimensional, of course. Yeah, I mean, I love that. That's a lot of power right there. Yeah, now, this yeah. is obviously a huge category. We're going to let it rest here. But I want to read this one <laughs> section from one of my favorite books in my astonishing private collection here. Chambers Dictionary of the Unexplained, published in 2007 by Chambers Harrop Publishers in Edinburgh. On page 340 here, I just wanted to read the entry for imp because that's what he is most frequently called. Yeah. An imp is a small demonic spirit. The name comes from the Anglo-Saxon imp, I-M-P-E, meaning a young shoot or sapling. Imping is an old agricultural term which refers to the technique of grafting, with the new bud being called an imp. So that in the supernatural sense, an imp is quite literally considered to be an offshoot of Satan. Imps are the smallest and most minor of demons in mythology and superstition. They are described as dark creatures who can assume different forms, and according to some accounts, they are so desperately lonely that they always go around in pairs or groups. In later folklore, the distinction between these demonic beings and other small mischievous spirits such as goblins and bogles became blurred as Puritans and other religious groups came to regard all types of fairy as manifestations of Satan. At the time of the witch trials of the Middle Ages, many believed that witches kept imps in animal form as their familiars. The most famous imp in British legend is probably the Lincoln Imp, a little demon who was said to have wreaked havoc in Lincoln Cathedral, dancing on the altar, tripping up the bishop, pushing over the dean, and teasing the choir. The cathedral's guardian angels came to the rescue, turning the imp to stone and placing him high above the angel choir. At the top of one of the columns, his little figure, only about 30 centimeters or one foot high, still sits there with one leg across his knee, laughing wickedly, and is a great tourist attraction. It is considered something of a challenge to find him. He is regarded with great affection and has been adopted as the unofficial symbol of the city. Um, so it's sad. They have, I think you felt bad for them having to, they were so lonely. They had to go in pairs. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, they have, a a lot of different powers if you want to believe that. And, uh, I don't feel too bad for people or beings that, uh, have a lot more freedom and mobility than I do. Well, there's a lot of other events connected to Lenain Rouge, and we should talk about those because that's it's not just about the encounter that uh, Cadillac had. There's other stuff as well, and it, we, we want to turn to this book by Charles M. Skinner, Montgomery Skinner, called Myths and Legends of Our Own Land, which uh, you can get on a Kindle. I, I have it, but you can also find it in print. It's a fascinating book. Skinner himself is a legend in the business of documenting legends. We've mentioned him before on the show. Uh, he published collections of myths, legends, and folklore found inside the United States and across the world. He hoped that America's progress would transform the nation's few legends into few but great ones. Quote, as time goes on, the figures seen against the morning twilight of our history will rise to more commanding stature, end quote. So uh, pretty interesting guy here. And here are some excerpts of his short mention of Lenon Rouge in Myths and Legends of Our Own Land, Volume 6, originally published in 1896. 13 years, by the way, after Hamlin's book, and again, 15 years after Oscar Fay Adams' article on Non Rouge from Normandy. And this is very eloquent here. 
among all the impish offspring of the stone god, wizards and witches that made Detroit feared by the early settlers, none were more dreaded than the Nain Rouge, or Demon of the Strait, for it appeared only when there was to be trouble, and that it delighted. It was a shambling red-faced feature with a cold glittering eye and teeth protruding from a grinning mouth. Cadillac, founder of Detroit, having struck at it, presently lost his seniori and his fortunes. It was seen scampering along the shore on the night before the attack on Bloody Run, when the brook that afterward bore this name turned red with the blood of soldiers. People saw it in the smoky streets when the city was burned in 1805, and on the morning of Hull's surrender, it was found grinning in the fog. It rubbed its bony knuckles expectantly when David Fisher paddled across the strait to see his love, Solange Godet, in the only boat he could find a wheelbarrow, namely, but was sobered when David made a safe landing. It chuckled when the youthful bloods set off on Christmas Day to race the frozen strait for the hand of Buffer Beauvais's daughter Claire, but when her lover's horse, a wiry Indian nag, came pacing in, it fled before their happiness. It was twice seen on the roof of the stable where that sour-faced, evil-eyed old mumbler, Jean Beaugrand, kept his horse sans Suchi a beast that, spite of its hundred years or more, could and did leap every wall in Detroit, even the twelve-foot stockade of the fort, to steal corn and watermelons, and that had been seen in the same barn, sitting at a table, playing seven-up, which is a card game, with his master, and drinking a liquor that looked like melted brass. Speaking of which, i very fascinated with Sansuchi, and I've... <laughs> put together a section of information on him. It is too much for this episode, and that will mm -hmm. be something that we will record and release exclusively to Patreon. But this yeah. horse, okay. this horse drank liquid brass, come on, um, and jumped 12-foot walls <laughs> and was over 100 and years old and played cards. Well, of course, the, the card playing just goes with the territory. But uh, what's interesting here is that it doesn't really have a direct connection to uh, Nain Rouge other than it was sitting on its stable. Yeah. Nain Rouge is sitting on uh, Sansuchi's stable, and that's it. Yes. <laughs> I love how the horse part here, this amazing horse, is uh, just a side note yeah. to the uh, Yeah, exactly. The Nain story. That's yeah. what I love. All right, so I'm going to read another little excerpt here. I'm skipping down a bit. The Nain Rouge may have been the lieutenant that took Jacques L'Esperance's ponies from the stable at Grosse Point and leaving no tracks in sand or snow, rode them through the air all night, restoring them at dawn, quivering with fatigue, covered with foam, bloody with the lash of a thorn bush. It stopped that exercise on the night that Jacques hurled a font of holy water at it. But to keep it away, the people of Grosse Point still mark their houses with the sign of a cross. I wonder if you go to Grosse Point now, if that's a tradition that continues. Hmm. One other interesting little anecdote here. There was a suspicion that the Nain Rouge had power to change a shape for one not less offensive. The brothers Tremblay had no luck in fishing through the straits and lakes until one of them agreed to share his catch with St. Patrick. The saints have to be sold at the church door for the benefit of the poor and for buying masses to relieve souls in purgatory. His brother doubted if the benefit would last and feared that they might be lured into the water and turned into fish, for had not St. Patrick eaten pork chops on a Friday after dipping them into <laughs> holy water and turned them into trout? But his good brother kept on and prospered, and the bad one kept on grumbling. Now at Gross Isle was a strange thing called the Rolling Muff that all were afraid of, since to meet it was a warning of trouble. But like the Fou Follet, which is the will o' the wisp, it could be driven off by holding a cross toward it or by asking it on what day of the month came Christmas. 
The worst of the Tremblays encountered this creature and it filled him with dismay. When he returned, his neighbors observed an odor, not of sanctity, on his garments, and their view of the matter was that he had met a skunk. The graceless man felt convinced, however, that he had received a devil's baptism from the Nain Rouge, and St. Patrick had no stauncher allies than both the Tremblays after that. This is pretty fascinating. I feel like there's a lot of stories that are connected here. Some of them, you know, but one of the interesting things about the Brothers Tremblay is that they're being ordered to be more pious, to share the fish with the poor. And that comes down again to the idea of what the Nain Rouge represents. Mm-hmm. Why is it there? And we should talk about the fire in 1805. That is a, a big part of of Detroit's history, and, and, and Lanon Rouge was connected with it. On June 11th in 1805, a fire started in the city that would burn down the entire city. It was thought to have begun in a local baker's stable, and rumors had it that some ashes from a pipe started it, but was never officially confirmed. There were 600 people living there at the time. No fire department, no firefighting equipment of any kind. They tried to put it out with a bucket brigade, but that didn't work. The town was gone by the afternoon. However, not a single person died. Hmm. Quoting from uh, Watson's book, Legends of Le Detroit, there were many, however, who asserted that they saw the dreaded Non Rouge, the traditional fiend of the fort, on the roof of the barn just before it fell in, and that he grinned and chuckled as he did on the day the old French flag was hauled down. I I would guess that would be another sighting from when Mm -hmm. uh, New France was handed over to Britain. So I guess he must have showed up to laugh about it (laughs) based on that line. Yeah, of course. Um, However, the city was determined to come back after the fire, and a territorial judge in the region created a street plan based on Washington, D.C.'s radiating spokes of a wheel design, which was designed by Pierre-Charles L'Enfant, a a French-American. When you look at today's flag of the city of Detroit, which we have an image of in our show notes, you can see two women in the center. And the one on the left is weeping over the town's destruction from the fire. And the one on the right is looking forward to a stronger, brighter city that will be built to replace it. In fact, the Latin on the flag, as well as Detroit's seal, according to the Detroit Historical Society, was declared by Father Gabriel Richard of St. Anne Parish, the one established by Cadillac, by the way. Mm-hmm. And it reads, Sparamus Meliora. Resurgit Cineribus, which means we hope for better things, it will arise from the ashes. Hmm. So, you know, the fire is one of the biggest things connected to Bonin Rouge. There are modern accounts here, and I'll, I'll thank Rue again and the Astonishing Research Corps for finding this at a website called Model D, uh, which is a Detroit-based publication. Quoting, one theory that seems to be supported by several of our, uh, these folks call them dwarf spotters, is that there's every chance that the Nong Rouge's particular brand of mischief has been, to put it in the parlance of the corporate world, downsized. This is from a, a, an article on Model D, published October 25th, 2005, by Chris Handyside. I forgot to give the byline, so I wanted to... October 25th, 2005, by Chris Handyside. Listen to the chilling report from a reader who prefers to go by the handle Roctimus Prime. Quote... <laughs> You're not going to believe this, but I don't know who else to tell. Anywho, my buddies and I were coming out of Lafayette, Coney Island at like 3.30 this morning. Go wings! And this um thing comes jumping out from the shadows and does this kind of half-hearted, a woo yell. It was this little man, maybe a really weird kid in a devil suit. He stunk, though, like men's room after the game stink. Oh. Well, well, we just started <laughs> laughing at him. Threw him a handful of change, got in our car, and went home. I didn't put two and two together till the next morning that he could have been that nine rouge guy spelled n-i-n-e man <laughs> that's creepy 
And then there was another one on that page that said, Tipster Angels Rock sends an account of a stinky, hairy, very, very short dude with a strange hump in the back of his ill-fitting Zubas waiting online to volunteer for the annual Angels Night Citizens Patrol, only to be turned away when he found out he needed a driver's license to lend a hand to the cause. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's to kind of a guardian angel position. So he showed up. Mm -hmm. The Red Dwarf, Lanon Rouge, showed up to do a citizens patrol to protect people in the city, but couldn't get the gig because he didn't have a driver's license. Well, at least he showed up. That's <laughs> half the battle. You know what I'm saying? This is interesting too, because this is one, this first time I think in, in the, all the stuff we came across where somebody talks about it being stinky, hairy, <laughs> you know, short yeah. dude with a hump on his back. Right, right. What's strange about that is what just yesterday we got an email from somebody you know about what? a <laughs> short, hairy dude, right? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, in one of our Legenders Lounge uh, chats here, which is are so much fun, you know, when we have the time. That's uh, a, yeah, we'll that's a, something in. that happens on our private Facebook group. Uh, yeah, well, it's just basically a Zoom meeting between uh, yeah, some listeners who want to get to uh, every now jump and then, in. Yeah. You know, we were asked, like, is anything weird happen? Like, is there any kind of weird synchronicities and coincidences? And I said a lot of it, yeah, it just it, other shows, uh, you know, friends of ours, uh, who do shows like uh, Adam and Matt from Graveyard Tales. We've not talked about it, of course, but we come out uh, with a, a similar uh, topics, releasing them around the same time that we didn't plan. Obviously, it was going on behind the scenes, or it's a lot of uh, that uh, that old chestnut uh, synchro mysticism or mystosynchronism. Yes. You know, it's the, it's yes. the first one, sorry. Somebody will mention something, it's like, well, we just covered that. In this case, we got a letter, uh, a really uh, cool email from a great listener who uh, just started listening, but it came in a day ago, and it's related in a strange way to what we're talking about now. Okay, so before I read this, just have it in your mind that when we talk about different phenomena, we hear so many different stories about things that are similar. And then I've come to believe, is it the same thing, but in a different form that people are seeing? Does it have to be the, you know, the, the, the piercing eyes that did not burn, but chilled the red gaze of, of the eyes and, and the reddish face and all the other things that go with that? Or is it a very similar or maybe the same thing that has shifted its shape a little per the person experiencing it, the experience adapts itself to the person viewing it or is uh, receiving it. So keep that in mind here when I read this story. Now, here we go. This is from a listener named Bucky and starts off, hello, huge fan. My name is Bucky and I'm from a place between Toronto and North Bay, Ontario, Canada. I've just recently got into listening to your podcast and am addicted. <laughs> we love that part. Yes. Throughout some of them, you guys reference quote unquote, little people. And that always gets my attention when I hear it. The reasoning is I have personally had an interaction with one when I was a young boy while out night fishing with my father. To clarify, I am a First Nations man. And I love this part here in parentheses. It's part of one of my favorite here. Native slash indigenous slash whatever works for people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yes, just take yes, your pick. That's for, I'm a First yes. Nations man. Yeah. So that's, that's his own declaration for all those folks who have emailed us in the past in defense of uh whatever <laughs> nomenclature we, we choose, which is never the yes. right thing for some people. No, he doesn't on care. Their behalf. <laughs> yeah. That's what he's saying. He said, <laughs> yeah. whatever. Just, yeah. just whatever you want to label me, fine. Yeah. Uh, but here's my story. As a First Nations man, he had heard stories of such things growing up as they are part of our culture. Anyways, back to my story. 
while out fishing in the night with my father for walleye, uh, in parentheses here, uh, which was fruitless. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> walleye are delicious, by the way. Good, good to eat and fish there. We started to walk the trail back out toward our vehicle. I fell behind as I was slow and carrying all the gear. It was a full moon night, and it was especially quiet that night. Anyways, as we were walking, my father was about 30 feet ahead of me when movement caught my eye from under a pine tree just off the foot trail leading down to the river. Being curious and without a flashlight, I decided to try and see what it was, thinking it was a, either a bear or something of the sort. I didn't say a word or let my father know. As I approached, I noticed I could make out the outline of what seemed to be a small man covered in what looked like hair. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. And as I strained my eyes to focus on what I was seeing, it was looking right at me. Startled, I jumped back and a little man scurried off down toward where we just came. We were the only ones in the woods that night, as far as I know. Years went by, and I never told anyone about what I saw because I couldn't think of a rational explanation. Anyhow, a few years later, my great-grandmother, for some reason, told me a story of her son, my great-uncle, who used to play with what he called the little people. The little people, down by the river behind her house. She never thought much of it until she went down to collect some cedar for tea, that's when she told me she found small fireplaces built of rocks and small foot patterns in the wet mud on the banks of the river. Again, she just figured it was her son playing. At this point, I began to shake, and my heart sank. I saw one, I said to her, and all she did was smile. I, obviously confused, asked why she was smiling, and she said, That's good, because it means they're looking out for you. My great-uncle became a medicine man later in life, and he never really told me about his experiences with them. All he told me was that they watch over some of us and that they are good spirits. When I got older, I went to a ceremony to receive my spirit name, and surprisingly, it was Little Water Spirit Boy. And was really? told the... <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, this is, yeah that was an awesome physical. email, yeah. I'm telling you, man. Yeah, That's yeah. why I, I pressed you to read this. Yeah, no, it's um, amazing. I know. It's, I, I think it's I cool. that detail, though. That's that's amazing. No, yeah. it's all coming together here. Uh, but here we go. There's a little more to it. Uh, well, anyway, he was told the water spirits would watch over me for the rest of this life. And he goes on to finish here. I know this doesn't seem like much of a story, I but disagree. I feared I would share, as this is really the only time I've spoken about it outside of my G-gram, great-grandmother, uncle, and my dad. Thank you for your time. If you get this email, I know you two are busy. Keep up the great work. So, uh, Bucky, we're I just first thing I want to say, Bucky, is that we're honored that you would send that to us. That's yeah. really cool, especially a story that you haven't shared with many people. Uh, I hope you're okay with us sharing it with several hundred thousand. But um, the <laughs> we're still, as of this recording, yeah. we're waiting for permission to come back. Right. That's a really really cool story, and it do, you do wonder about these connections and the little people and all of that stuff. And I and yeah. we just had a request uh, also by email. I think in the past couple of weeks, somebody saying, "When are you going to cover these little people and fairies?" And yeah, oh, we did. Yes, we did. Yes, yeah. uh, the fae so, folk and all that. Yeah. See, we read the emails. Yeah, I know you don't think it, but we do. <laughs> Well, there's a couple of things that uh, I wanted to ask you about, Scott, when I read this, because I, I know you I, you skimmed it as we got it in. I said, well, don't worry, I, I, I'd like to read this one. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, saved it. So you hadn't really focused on this one, but it's just that uh, it's a small humanoid covered in hair kind of creature. Yeah. I wondered, he hasn't responded yet, but I wondered uh, if Bucky thought that this was maybe a juvenile Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Uh, yeah. Or what this thing was. And like I said, it's a little person, a little humanoid, uh, a humunculus yeah. covered in hair. But is that also a non rouge, a nain rouge? And here's the other thing that's interesting. Well, there's many things that are interesting about this email, but one that uh, resonated with me is that the First Nations viewpoint on this and that, no, these are good spirits. Yes. You know, just treat them right. Be respectful. They might play a, a harmless prank on you, like a coworker might or uh, one of your friends uh, to get a laugh. That's where their sense of humor lies. But if you treat them right and respect them, They'll help you out. The other thing I wonder too is like it would if you and I were there, would we even be able to see them? Are they in this plane or or not? Yeah. Or maybe they're they're on this plane, but you have to be spiritual, you know, have a spiritual eye open to even see them there. Yeah. As opposed to a literal physical object that anyone who's looking can see. You know what? There's a lot going on here because uh people fall back into these old chestnuts over and over. And we've certainly had lots of comments directed to us saying like, well, you know what? The only people that really experience this stuff, they're really religious. So, you know, these spirit attachments, whatever, like you got to be Catholic to experience that. And they have to say, no, you don't. We get a lot of emails from people saying like, hey, you know what? I was atheist or I was agnostic and man, this happened to me and I'm freaked out and I don't know what to think about it because here's the thing. It doesn't care what you believe. It just happens sometimes. And as we can attest firsthand, sometimes when you're a little disrespectful, that's who it's aimed at. And in the story of Kadiak, he was setting himself up for a fall. And what did he do when he encountered that? Well, that's the part where you got to make a choice. Are you going to be a decent person and maybe just say, like, how do you do, monsieur, or, and, and let it pass? Uh, you don't have to bow down to it, but you don't thwack it with a stick. Yeah. <laughs> and you can look at it. This way, too. We haven't talked about this yet as far as our conclusions, but it's also a fable of sorts. And a lot like the Native American traditions of the American Southwest or the trickster coyote where you are challenged. What kind of person are you? If this happens to you, you see this, uh, how are you going to react as a decent person with charity or are you going to be a jerk about it? And if you're a jerk about it, then you suffer the consequences and you get what you asked for. So uh, that's what I loved about uh, Bucky's email here anyway, in that, yeah, it was nothing to be feared. And uh, he's little water spirit boy. That is, yeah, that's he cool. is somehow connected to this spiritually. And his family is uh, just like, yeah, this is part of life. And uh, we see them and we're not afraid of them. But getting to your point, though, is, as far as like being able to see them, I think, again, I'm going off of people writing emails and maybe they're all just putting us on, pulling our leg. But uh, we've had some emails where people did not believe in this stuff, and then they saw something totally unexplainable, and it rocked their world. Yeah. And now they don't know what to think. And like I said, it happens uh, to people on both sides of the belief fence. Indeed. Cutting back into our outline here, and we are getting uh, closer to the end of the show. Yes. I did want to mention that there is apparently a protector for the city of Detroit against Le Nain Rouge, and this is a... I couldn't find this in many places, but this is from a blog entry in uh, June of 2013 by a blogger named E-E-B-E-L-Z-E-Bulls. And uh, the, the blog is called The Sound, a blog about poetry god in Detroit in no particular order. 
And uh, Ebels mentions this defender against Lanon Rouge of the city, which is apparently the spirit of a statue erected in the late 50s. Now, I know it's odd to cite a blog on this, but this is recent history kind of stuff. This is how legends evolve. So we want to cover it because all these factors go into how this story gets told going forward. The other thing that's interesting here is, um, and this is the elephant in the room when it comes to the Lanon Rouge, is that there is a suggestion of racism here. And this actually covers that. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more going forward here. Quote, it has been suggested that Lanon Rouge was a manifestation of racism against the red man or Native Americans. The recent sightings in which the supposed non was seen busking, breaking into a car or mumbling by a Dutch girl could reinforce that theory. The racism being transferred to African-Americans and the homeless poor. It's hard to tell from anonymous email accounts. And then he specifically cites the Model D form that we just read those accounts from, because those are anonymous things coming in. And what they're saying is that there's an implied uh, ongoing possibility of racism there. And that'll come up again before we finish the show tonight. Another thing that this mentions is the defender of Detroit, which I made reference to a few minutes ago. Detroit is not defenseless against its demon, however. Historically, the Non Rouge was seen being chased by the spirit of early Detroit resident Pierre Livernois, a.k.a. the Spirit of Detroit. The statue, known as the Spirit of Detroit, is located in front of the Coleman A. Young Municipal Building, a.k.a. City Hall, uh, it was actually never named, but given his popular name, he can be identified with Livernois, shining the light of God on a family meant to represent all human relations. Maybe the Non Rouge is now warded off by this statue. It was dedicated in 1958, but there was an email back then, and Detroit is rather large. It could be the Non didn't stumble upon it until much later when, let's say, he was so scared he ran up a utility pole, because that's <laughs> another reference that is one of the accounts yeah yes yes. (laughs) but but, but looking at the statue from wikipedia this is what it says about it the spirit of detroit is a monument with a large bronze statue created by marshall fredericks and located at the municipal center uh cast in oslo norway the 26 foot 9 ton sculpture sits on a 60 ton marble base in his left hand the large seated figure holds a gilt bronze sphere emanating rays to symbolize god the people in the figure's right hand are a family group symbolizing all human relationships Fredericks did not originally name the sculpture. The name actually came from the citizens of Detroit based on an inscription from 2 Corinthians. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. There's no mention, though, of the statue being named Pierre Livernois, nor chasing Lenon Rouge. Livernois is a prominent street in Detroit, but it was not named for Pierre. In fact, uh, quote, Livernois Avenue was named after Francis... Livernois, a French farmer who resided in the area during the 18th century. So this seems like a very thin sort of new part of the legend mm-hmm. that the spirit associated with this statue, which they often put jerseys on when they're <laughs> when the teams are in the playoffs. I guess that is supposedly chasing off Lenon Rouge, but hmm. I'm not sure. And nous de retour. Oh. I can't follow it. I should be able to understand it. What did you just say? Oh, my God. Well, if you can't understand, I just do not. I screwed it up totally. Here we go. And we're back? Yeah, well, you should have guessed. That's the first thing I say with every show. I haven't written the housekeeping yet, so (laughs) I didn't. Oh. I see. Yeah. (laughs) That's not written yet, so I'm not ready to do that. Oh, I I see. I was starting the actual show. Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. 
There's no housekeeping. It's three lines. You thought that was housekeeping? <laughs> no, I, thought, I was hoping. It's like, okay, let's get started. Yeah, yeah. Well, Scott sent me an article just today, and it's from the Detroit Metro Times, written by Lee DeVito, called The Legend of the Legend of Detroit's Nain Rouge. Rising Nain. Something like Raising Cane or Raising Nain. Yes, so, Raising Nain. <laughs> that's the subtitle. Uh, but very well done. And it goes through not just the legend and uh, how it's celebrated uh, today in Detroit, but where that came from and a little bit of the history. And we spotted somebody in it that we had heard of. It talks about some of the earlier cases, one including the utility pole. Let me read this one excerpt. This is pretty funny. Some say the dwarf could be seen before the 12th Street ride in 1967. And as recently as 1976, it was reported that two DTE workers spotted what they thought was a child climbing a utility pole before a particularly brutal snowstorm crippled the city. That's possibly the most recent Nain sighting. DeVito's article, though, is mostly about the parade that has only recently evolved in Detroit in honor of Le Non Rouge. It's called the mm. Marche du Non Rouge, and it only began in 2010. The parade was started by a couple of Wayne State University law school students, Francis Gruno and Joe Ull. But uh, those guys and the lore surrounding the parade will have you believe it's 300 years old, but it's not. And uh, apparently they saw how Mardi Gras helped New Orleans heal from Katrina in 2005, and that at least partially inspired their idea to create the parade for the demon of the strait. Quoting the article again, Grunau and Ull envisioned a new Mardi Gras type of event for Detroit, which would feature a parade of people dressed in disguises so as not to be recognized by the name driving out the Red Dwarf, ushering in a new season of change. Now, to their surprise, with the first time they did this, hundreds of people showed up the first year with the event culminating in burning an effigy of the name. Next year, even more people showed up. In 2015, it was reported some 5,000 people attended the parade. So we get down to this point in the article, and there's a whole section to it devoted to a gentleman who had shown up in a trench coat, or at least that's what the article said, holding (laughs) signs about protecting the name because the parade is very much about driving the name out of town and the effigy and uh, a sort of a violence and hatred towards it. And this guy's there with other people supporting him that say uh, in their signs, it says, be nice to name, stop name shame, know your name. He's got another one, uh, support your local creatures. Don't dread the red. Name is nice. So I was support like, the short was support that support the one short of them? yeah I think that was sure. it <laughs> something like and that. I just like I, I was like whoa who is this paranormal punk I was like this is the coolest thing ever and I was reading more and more about <laughs> yeah. it and it turns out that it happens to be an acquaintance of ours who I would now call a friend named John E L Tenney and uh, Mr <laughs> Tenney is a tour de force in the paranormal community, uh, appearing frequently on numerous podcasts. He's a lecturer. He's traveled. He's an expert on all things paranormal, uh, cryptids, UFOs, all around. We've been wanting to have him on our show for a long time. He's frequently been on Rob Christopherson's show, Our Strange Skies. He's also uh, frequently on Ryan Sprague's show, Somewhere in the Skies. You can find him in lots of different places. And I was like, oh my God, we know this guy in the middle of, after doing like this really intense research and trying to put this outline together, come across this article and here's a picture of John E.L. Tinney standing there. And I immediately thought, and this literally was earlier today as we're recording this, I thought, we have got to talk to him. We have got to talk. (laughs) This is finally the perfect reason to have him on. 
and I sent him an email hoping he could come on and talk about how he's showing up to protest the treatment of Lenon Rouge. And apparently 15 minutes was not enough of a warning to get John over here. No, I'm here. Oh, oh, oh nice. my goodness. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> From oh, the ethers. God. Yeah, considering it was a same day request. I can't believe it. Mm. <laughs> well, so John, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? You live in this area, right? Yes, I'm born and raised in Royal Oak, which is about 11 miles outside the city of Detroit. What's your take on Lenane Rouge and the development of how he's been seen over the years and, and more specifically what's going on with this parade and, and the ongoing, I guess, evolution of the, of the legend for that area? The first time I had ever heard about Detroit's Red Dwarf was in the mid-90s. And it was a little scary, spooky monster legend that was passed around at, in paranormal circles and at supernatural meetings, you know, when groups of witches would get together. And especially if you went to metaphysical conventions where there were psychic fairs and stuff like that, people would talk about, oh, Detroit has, you know, this little red devil. And I actually worked with Channel 4, our local NBC affiliate, on this haunted Detroit segment. And I researched the Red Dwarf for them. And it got cut down to a real spooky, the information I gave them did not make it on air. They did not use a whole ton. It was maybe 30 second segment in the total of a 30 minute program. All right. And they had a hooded person with a red face and glowing eyes. And I think that was in 98 or 97 or 98. And my research had always been, oh, so this is a... First Nations people, Indigenous nation legend that is being retold through a European lens, which is where we get the Hamlin story, which is what most everybody is basing their name Rouge, even the name is French, what they're basing their information on. And I didn't find that to be correct. Well, I didn't ever think anything was going to come from it. And I did my ghost thing, UFO thing, kept doing my lectures, writing my books and working on shows. And then all of a sudden, I saw that there was going to be a parade for the Red Dwarf in Detroit, the March de Nain Rouge. And I was like, oh, wow, like crazy. Someone is grabbing this and kind of running off with it and doing something with it. This is great. We can have like our own supernatural mascot, the way people have Mothman or the Hopkins, Hopkins Bill Goblins. Like it's just this great thing we're going to do. And then I found out it was to kick the Red Dwarf out of Detroit. Uh. And I went... <laughs> I went crazy. And they had created a costume of this very demonic, dark red looking face with fanged teeth and uh, pointed claws and everything in Detroit that was going wrong with Detroit is being blamed on the red dwarf. And we've got to kick him out of the city. And I'm coming from the background of this is a indigenous nation, first nations people legend that may perhaps be talking about a trickster spirit which is both, you know, it's neither good nor bad, but it's not the cause of Detroit's problems. Like the cause of Detroit's problems are people. And (laughs) to place the blame on a supernatural entity and then think that you're going to, I mean, and so I talked to the creators of the parade and the march and everything like that. And they said, well, it's a, it's a catharsis. It's a, we're going to get everybody mad and we'll get them whipped up into a frenzy and, and then everybody will go out and do good and we'll make donations in the neighborhood and that all sounds great, but the reality is most of the people, even to this day, I go every year and I protest. I just try and pass out little pamphlets and information. I have signs that say, you know, stop name shame and 
uh, support the short, things like that. <laughs> because it's a way to start a deeper conversation with people. But I've found over the years, much like almost anything, no one who's attending the parade even knows that it's about the Red Dwarf. Right. They don't know any legend. It's usually happens the week after St. Patrick's Day. It's the last time they can get drunk and walk around in the streets and scream and have a party. And there was a band there two or three years ago. And I walked up to the marching band and I said, how did your school allow you to do this? And they're like, oh, no, we just all came in our school costumes. And I was like, oh, what do you think about the Red Dwarf? And they're like, what's that? And I was like, the name Rouge. And they were like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, you see all these signs all over Nain Rouge and Red Dwarf? They're like, yeah, we're just here to play music. But all of a sudden you get see pictures and there's all these people marching and a marching band and, and floats. And it's just like almost anything, people just want to be involved in something and they don't really care what it's about. Right. In the article from 2016, you seemed a little bit organized. You had some people with you. Are people showing up with you now when you go? Or is it, do you guys get together ahead of time and make your signs and figure out where you're going to be and how many of you there are and that sort of thing? I think the thing that's great is for the first few years I did it, I was literally by myself. So the parade was maybe two to 3,000 people. And I purposefully would march in the opposite direction. And so they would have to walk through me and I would carry my little signs and people got, I mean, people would get mad. They didn't know what I was doing. They thought I was just a rabble rouser, just trying to make noise what was really funny, though, is since I was one person at the time, I could walk through the entire crowd, hit a side street, run full speed, get back ahead of them, and then they'd have to pass me again because <laughs> the march is about a, the march is about a mile long. They're walking very slow. I'm one person. Right. So throughout the course of a, uh, a mile long march, they would have to pass me three or four times and their rage would build every single time. Like, here's this guy again. How is he getting here again? <laughs> But the good thing is, is over the years, I passed out pamphlets and got people more information and created a website that maybe fleshed it out a little bit and did some more interviews. And now the last time we did the march before the quarantine and everything, there were like 25 people marching with me. Oh, cool. They brought their own signs and some of them made t-shirts and some of them made banners and they realized we're doing something. You know, I've, again, I've talked to the, the people who created the march. And I said, this could very easily be switched into a celebration of Detroit's history. Instead of chasing out the Red Dwarf, we could be celebrating the Red Dwarf. The fact that we do have a city that has a past and that we have these great legends and we could sell, be celebrating it and have a cathartic kind of moment, but in a positive way, instead of getting people who are drunk, worked up and screaming, I mean, people do when they see us now. People have been drinking, and so they will sometimes rip signs out of our hands and spit on us and scream at us. And that's not what you want at a parade celebrating a city. Yeah. Now that you have a larger group, are you still going against the parade route, or do you go with them? Do you get a spot in there? We walk with them now. Okay. Something else that's happened in the past few years, which I find immensely hysterical, <laughs> is they still have this evil-looking demon red dwarf that is the kind of head of the parade. But he has a microphone. He's not really speaking. They have a PA system, but they have a pre-recorded loop of the things he's supposed to be saying into the microphone. And one of the things that he has started saying over the past three years is, the Red Dwarf belongs to Detroit. He should not be pushed to one person's agenda. He should not be pushed 
to people who want you to believe one thing when it's possible that he could be something else. These usurpers of the Red Dwarfs legend, and I'm, it's that has started, and it's a direct correlation, like whether or not they want to say. The, again, I don't have any secrets. One of the promoters of the parade during a parade about three or four years ago, I think actually the, the year of the article uh, that came out in 2016, tried to start a fist fight with me at the parade, <laughs> like pushed me cocked his arm back. The other promoter grabbed his arm. Is this the two guys, the law school guys that started Yeah, it? Francis Grunow. Uh, Francis is fine. Francis yeah. is a good yeah. guy. Francis okay. understands that there can be happiness in this, but the mm. other promoter was not happy with me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> one year, again, whether or not they would ever admit that one year, they always have kind of a grand marshal of the parade. Yeah. And the year after that guy tried to punch me, the grand marshal of the parade was a group of people dressed up as the Ghostbusters. And I feel like they did that on purpose to have paranormal people up on the stage with the Red Dwarf. Oh, yeah. right. I mean, part of the argument, though, is, is uh, and I can see this, for, at least from the article here, that uh, uh, Grunau is saying that, uh, you know, when you have problems, that people focus on a scapegoat. And that's what the purpose is here, is that it's not us. We've been cursed somehow. Uh, through no fault of our own, and that's where we can direct our anger. You know, that's what he's saying is the uh, the purpose to this. But your point would be, let's not focus anger. Let's have a symbol where we can kind of gather around it and discuss the problems that we have, and uh, talk about solutions and and uh, fellowship and uh, all these all the positive things, not just to get drunk and vent uh, hatred. You know, am I got that right? Yeah, absolutely. And this conversation can get uncomfortable because one of the things that I do point out to people, I mean, I try to hit, I have a cute little red devil character that I use to kind of get people into the conversation. And I have these signs that are kind of silly support the short. And that is to start a larger conversation because to break the, the parade and the March and the legend down into a place where you can get uncomfortable. The Marche de Nain Rouge is marching is ridding the city of Detroit of a little red man who causes all of the problems. And that legend is also tied to Cadillac. It's tied to the French who settled Detroit. And it is all wrapped around the same time period as the time that we started destroying the burial mounds from the First Nations people who lived here. And if you read Hamlin's original stories, you can see very clearly that she might be talking about First Nations people. Right. And so now, 100 and 200 years later, when we talk about the red devil that's causing problems in the city of Detroit, what did that really mean back then? Absolutely. And what are you, by not having the conversation, what are you continuing to have go on in the city of Detroit? Well, and I, I'm glad you brought that up. The other thing that's interesting to me about it on the supernatural level, even if you disconnected it from the possibility of being, you know, of the racist undertones that it has, there's also one of the ideas anyway, is that this, that Lenin Rouge, it, it was a messenger. It wasn't a cause. It was telling you like any prophecy or oracle, it's saying, hey, you know, if you, even in Hamlin's story, if you don't change your ways, don't get it straight, things are going to get sideways, you're going to have nothing. And you know, this it'll still be a great town someday, but it won't have anything to do with you. That sort of thing. Like when I see them vilifying this character, uh, it would be like vilifying the Mothman because the Silver Bridge collapsed. Yeah, absolutely. 
I have always understood, even back in the 90s, that the Red Dwarf, whether it was an evil, impish, demon-looking creature or a representation of a First Nations god, that it was a harbinger, that it was just warning you. It was saying, listen, things can be better, but something bad is going to happen. All of the legends that are told now are the Nainrus showing up before something bad happens. And then they attribute the bad thing to the Nainrus showing up. When in reality, no, I'm just here to show you something bad is going to happen. Now you have to take responsibility and do something about it. I'm not causing it. You are. But I'm here to warn you that you can change that. And I think that's even today where, you know, the parade and the, the local legends about it should be leaning more, that we have this, this warning sign for our own, you know, foibles and foils. When we talk about these angles here, there are so many connections then to Mothman and what it means for the people of West Virginia and across the river. And, uh, of course, going back to Chief Cornstalks and a curse that supposedly happened and the cause of all our problems and disrespect of Native cultures and, and beliefs by European interlopers. So now we have all these same themes and tropes going on, but on a metaphysical level then, do you think that there's any kind of perhaps, if this creature does exist, if the Mothman does exist, if Nal Rouge in some form exists, even as a forest spirit or a woodland spirit, could it be possibly a tulpa creation based around the same problems that afflict any area where you have native peoples trying to get along and they have their own, like, you know, because some people believe the little people are trickster spirits, but they're good. If you play nice with them, they can help you. They might play a fun prank, but they're generally there to protect you and help you out. But if you just come in with a lot of disrespect, then that turns the tide and you end up with a monster who may or may not be causing these things or just telling you about them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, the way that I think about paranormal, supernatural phenomenon, mythological phenomenon, we call it Mothman or the Non Rouge or whatever, but I mean, is there just a spirit of warning that manifests itself differently to different people at different times? When you take something like the trickster spirit of Nanabozo or Glooscap, some of the First Nations, they don't look like anything. Like, yes, we do have a pictogram of Nanabozo that looks like a little red rabbit, but he's also been a bird and a fox and a coyote. It can take any form. And so when we say, you know, that there's even a division between Mothman and Lenon Rouge or anything like that, like it could just possibly be the same kind of overarching spirit that's here to protect us and warn us. And then when you don't take the advice of nature, that's when things go wrong. Nature is literally telling you, don't do this thing. And then you do that thing and it was right. And you should have paid attention to us. Yeah, and I want I wanted to ask you about Nanabozo, or I, I was glad you said I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but it's you you mentioned that in the article in the interview with Devito, and it's I think it seemed like it was pretty enlightening to him and probably to a lot of folks is that 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 was a pre existing uh, mythology or folklore connected to Algonquins and the Ojibwe and other tribes in the area. Do you think that there is a connection there between Lenain Rouge, the idea of it? Do you, I mean, I, this is the thing I can't figure out. You know, Hamlin wrote her book 180 years later. It's easy to go back. And we found some stuff that even connected it to, by its name, to Normandy two years prior to her book. Right. But that was the same, that one is more like a, almost a gremlin, the really typical gremlin, hobgoblin, 
simple little thing. The other characteristics associated with this seem to come more from Na uh, First Nations folklore to me. Yeah, I do think that there was some kind of nature spirit here for the, the people who were the original inhabitants of Detroit. And if you read, the, we don't have a lot of writings by Hamlin. This is, you know, just a problematic thing, but she died at 35. She was very young. And of the few re remaining writings that we have, it's easy to see that she had a French bias. Okay, so she wrote in one of her little biographies that we actually have, she was writing about herself. She says, the old French pioneers clang with great tenacity to the traditions and customs of la belle France. The French language is spoken in Canada with purity and elegance of the time of Louis, but after the conquest, it lost its purity by the mingling of other languages. Like, you can already see that she's mad that French isn't the dominant force in Canada, that it should be. And so the part of the legend that she writes about, when she begins writing about the legend, she talks about a fortune teller that comes to tell Cadillac that he's going to be visited by misfortune. And she describes the fortune teller as a woman of unusual height, a dark swarthy complexion with restless glittering eyes, strangely fashioned in garments who spoke in a deep sonorous voice with a slight foreign accent. And people have said, well, like, how do you know? She could be talking about a French person. But at the time, you have to remember that the, the French missionaries had been teaching French to the First Nations people for about 50 years at that point. And so it's very possible that she's talking about a First Nations woman coming to this party of, of French people to read poems and do fortune tellings that were all very fun to them at the time. So when you do start to break that idea and legend down, there was probably some information being exchanged between the First Nations people and the French people. And it's just getting, as mythology and folklore does, it's just getting mixed up and changed and evolved. When you read that, I thought uh, another way to look at that, because of course, yes, who's going to actually be there in 1701? Another way you can look at it, which fits a lot of tropes coming from Europe, is that this is a Roma woman. This is, or they would, as they would call her, a gypsy woman. And very mysterious, and a gypsy fortune teller, and that that whole uh, mythology around them. And then the other thing that was interesting that uh, we have, we've talked about here uh, is she performed some scrying and also some uh, psychometry. She's holding his hand, and she looks into the the, the liquid, the indescribable, uh, unknowable liquid, right? Which is like quicksilver, except it's clear. So it, it's like it's all these kind of tropes built in here, and. It seems like it rings, and this is what I, I see happening with La Nal Rouge, in that it fits both Native and European uh, traditions in a very human folklore and storytelling way. So it, it's very much uh, accessible and adaptable by both. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I wrote a little uh, booklet pamphlet back in the 2000s about this kind of idea, but not about the Nan Rouge, the booklet that I wrote about was what happens when you blend European folklore with the First Nations and the indigenous people's culture in the United States. And this little booklet that I wrote was about when the French came to Canada and were talking to the First Nations people and communicating with them. And the First Nations people were talking about this great hunter and 
he is enormous and he's huge and he can conquer anything that comes his way. And they don't know what these people are talking about, but the French understand that, oh, we're logging. Maybe they're talking about a giant logger. <laughs> and so the French start talking about Paul Bunyan. Then all of a sudden you have, because of the European influence, this story of the great hunter that the First Nations people were talking about becomes the legend of Paul Bunyan, this giant man with this blue ox. And all of a sudden you realize when you track back on the First Nations and indigenous stories of the great hunter, they're actually talking about the constellation Orion. You have this giant hunter and, mm -hmm. and the next closest star to Orion is actually Taurus and it's a blue star. And so you have Paul Bunyan's blue ox, which is babe, that goes around. And so you take something that's very simple, which is we're explaining our astronomy to you and your, our astrology to you and our gods that are based on the stars. And the French turn it into Paul Bunyan making giant pancakes. So, <laughs> the, you know, the, the same thing is happening with the non-rouge, non-abozo, whatever you want to call this creature. It's shaping and changing, which you know, in a tricksterish way, I'm all for. But I think when you lock it down into it's only a bad thing, that's where the trickster spirit, the, the metaphysical aspect of the trickster spirit would probably become most enraged. And the other thing that's really fascinating to me about this is it's happening again right before our eyes. And now with the internet, you know, it allows us to track these things. But even just a few decades ago, this shift that you're seeing happen right there in Detroit, that you're actually a part of trying to shine a light on, might not have happened. And then the, the shift would come along, and then the story would just be the new version of the story, and it would be harder and harder to find out how it all started. For sure. Since we love weird, paranormal, supernatural, metaphysical stuff, you know, I could even place an unneeded concept into the non-rouge, which is, oh, so you built up all of this kind of uh, psychic energy and all of this uh, thoughtful or unthoughtful action against the Nain Rouge to like kick out all of the evil in Detroit. And all of a sudden, no one is on the streets in Detroit last year. Everything's gone. All these shops are closed. Everything has vanished from the streets of America. Yeah. You kicked it out. Good work. <laughs> 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 We're all in our house now. We're not allowed to leave. Good yeah. work. Good work. Congratulations. Good, good you made it happen. Yeah. yeah. That's also the meme of the deal with the devil is that you get more than you bargained for. You make a plea, then wait a second, this is too much. It's like, well, no, we've met your terms of the bargain. You're just getting much more than you expected, which of course that's, uh, and then of course the, the, the hero of the story has to figure out a way to trick the devil back into uh, holding the bag, let's say. Absolutely. And, you know, it's the metaphysical folkloric trope of don't make wishes because you'll get them. You're just not going to get them the way you want. So, John, Michigan has all these great legends and creatures and lore and uh, UFO incursions and Bigfoot. You have the Michigan Dogman, you have Lou Guru, not even speaking of a Nong Rouge. Why is Michigan so effing weird? I have tried to figure this out for 30 years. I don't have a good answer for it. I do tell people Michigan's a great place to live if you're a weirdo because we have so much strange stuff. And I have recently come to this idea. So in the UP of Michigan, scientists found one of the largest living organisms 
under the UP in Michigan, under the Upper Peninsula. And it's a giant mushroom underneath the state of Michigan. And they've found core samples, not only of the same mushroom in the UP, but in the lower peninsula of Michigan, showing that this thing is under one of the Great Lakes. It's so deep and so big that it's under the state. And so I have recently come to this strange John-only idea. I don't know if it's true or not, but I think that everyone in the state of Michigan is microdosed. <laughs> I think that we are living on top of a giant mushroom and we've been eating from it and drinking its water our whole lives. And perhaps our spiritual awareness and metaphysical awareness centers of our brains are open a little bit more than everyone else's. Oh, wow. That's a I'll big buy that. Yeah, that is. <laughs> I remember learning that the aspen groves were a single organism and they were thought to be one of the larger ones. But this this would upstage that by a long way. That's crazy. Mycelium uh, net, neural network of some kind. And of course, now I'm thinking of the X-Files where it makes you see an altered reality as it slowly digests you. Right, exactly. Maybe that's what's going on in Michigan. Or maybe, you know, there's all, always legends about the supernatural and metaphysical qualities of water. Mm -hmm. And we're a state surrounded by it. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. I mean, you've been all over the country and, and different parts of the world as well. Is Michigan any stranger uh, as a hotspot or would you even consider it a hotspot or how's it compared to other places? No, one of the things that I often talk about in my lectures when people ask me, what's the most haunted place? What's the weirdest place? What's the place with the most UFO sightings? The only solid answer you can ever give, I think, anyone is Earth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wherever there is earth and wherever there are people <laughs> in some places, even when there's not people, strange stuff is happening. Yeah. I always want to know uh, what are the things we're not seeing and experiencing? If a UFO right? lands in the woods and no one's around to see it. <laughs> exactly. Did it ever land? <laughs> yeah. They'll be missing. Uh, you'll see remains of it later that will be hotly debated. So. Well, John, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show. And especially, it's, it's nice to have an expert and also an interloper on the show when it comes to this <laughs> legend. We don't usually get to talk to somebody who's actively involved in, in framing the story. We have to have John back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. Is we've been uh, uh, trying to think of a, a great reason. Uh, he's been on our, our good friend Rob uh, Christopherson's show. Our Strange Skies a few times. I've really enjoyed those conversations and it uh, it was high time uh, we had John on. So uh, yeah, we'll have to, uh, we'll, we'll have to craft something to specifically bring you back. I'll give you one more little uh, aspect about the Red Dwarf non-rouge that no one ever talks about. Okay. Which is, it's a, obviously kind of meant to be a spring celebration. No one ever talks about the fact too that it happens right around the time of the anniversary of the Hillsdale-Dexter, Michigan 1966 UFO flap. Oh, uh, which starts next week. Oh, really? March 14th. All the UFOs in Michigan, the biggest UFO, mass UFO sighting in American history. It's right around the same time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the kitchen sink principle. It's uh, Point Pleasant once again. Yeah. You've got everything. Yeah. The city on a river. Yeah. UFOs, yeah, monsters, yeah, the same thing, the same, the same folkloric legend repeating itself over and over, trying to get someone to pay attention. Do you think we're living in a sim universe? <laughs> <laughs> I think that I say this in my lectures. If the universe has ever taught us anything, it's that the universe loves to create and in a in a form play 
And what it wants us to do is it wants us to create and it wants us to play. And so it taps us on the shoulder and it says, do you want to play? And if you say yes, it's going to play. And if you say no, it'll wait, but it'll tap you on the shoulder again and say, do you want to play? And it never will stop. And I, I think that that's, a, that's the lesson that we can take from the universe is create, play, think stagnation is the enemy. Speaking of your lectures, where can our listeners find you? Like, I, You understand you have a new podcast coming out soon? Yes, it's uh, very voyeuristic. It's just me and my friend Jessica talking to each other on the phone. There's no set topic. We ramble the way that people ramble on the phones. It's called What's Up Weirdo? <laughs> it's available on all the podcast platforms. Weirdlectures.com is where there's a lot of weird information. And all of my social media is just John E.L. Tenney. That's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of it. I tried to make it pretty easy. Or you can just type Weirdo Tenney into Google and follow <laughs> those rabbit trails. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time, especially on such short notice, John. And we absolutely do want to have you back for a broader, deeper discussion of a, a fun topic in the future if you're up for it. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Okay, thanks again to John for coming on the show. We'll have links to all his stuff in our show notes. You guys have got to check it out. And of course, he will be back. Uh, but again, man, thanks for coming on on such short notice. I wanted mm -hmm. to come back to Nana Bozo that he mentioned, which I, I looked up on the <laughs> Wikipedia page and I practiced. You know, it had uh, the pronunciation spelled out there. You couldn't hear it, but I think yeah. it's Nana Baja. I think. Nana Baja. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I think. Yeah. Or uh, Nana Bush is another one. Nana Bush. N A N A. <laughs> Isn't that a brand of shoe? I know. It's oh, that's Nun like Bush. It. Nana Bojo, it just it does sound like a a Led Zeppelin track. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well I don't know why. This is so. yeah, I know. The, the, the nice joke. <laughs> but um there's a site here that we visited before, and I know that because I recognize it. It's called uh native languages.org and mm -hmm. it talks about Nana Bojo. And this will lead into our conclusions and a little bit about what uh, John talked about when he came on a few minutes ago. Nanabaja is the benevolent culture hero of the Anishinaabe tribes. Benevolent. I want to I want to point that out. His name is spelled so many different ways, partially because the Anishinaabe languages were originally unwritten, so English speakers just spelled the name however it sounded to them at the time, and partially because the Ojibwe, Algonquin. Potawatomi, and Menominee languages are spoken across a huge geographical range in both Canada and the U.S., and the name sounds different in the different languages and dialects they speak. The differing first letters of his name, however, have a more interesting story. Nanabuja's grandmother, who named him, used the particle in to begin his name, which means my. Other speakers who are not Nanabuja's grandmother would normally drop this endearment and use more general prefixes W or M. So if you listen to a fluent Ojibwe speaker telling a Nanabuja story, he may refer to the culture hero as Weenabuja most of the time, but switch to calling him Nanabuja while narrating for his grandmother. Hmm. Interesting. Stories about Nanabuja vary considerably from community to community. Nanabuja is usually said to be the son of either the West Wind or the Sun. And since his mother died when he was a baby, Nanabuja was raised by his grandmother, Nokomis. In some tribal traditions, Nanabuja is an only child, but in others he has a twin brother or is the eldest of four brothers. The most important of Nanabuja's brother figures is Chibiabos or Makwayo. Nanabuja's inseparable companion, often portrayed as a wolf, variously said to be his twin brother, younger brother, or adopted brother. Hmm. Nanabuja is associated with rabbits and is sometimes referred to as the great hare, Mizabuz, 
although he is rarely depicted as taking the physical form of a rabbit. Nanabaja is a trickster figure and can be a bit of a rascal, but unlike trickster figures in some tribes, he does not model immoral and seriously inappropriate behavior. Nanabaja is a virtuous hero and a dedicated friend and teacher of humanity. Though he may behave in mischievous, foolish, and humorous ways in the course of his teaching, Nanabaja never commits crimes or disrespects native culture and is viewed with great respect and affection by the Anishinaabe people. So, and there's a couple of stories on that page. Uh, we'll have a link to the page. But when you read about the kinds of things that Nanabaja is doing, you see the disposition here. For example, Chippewa and Ottawa Indian legends about how Nanabaja gave turtles their shells. How Manabus, again, a different variation of it, slayed a man-eating giant fish. So what you're seeing here is something that's protecting people and being benevolent towards them, which I think is really interesting. So coming back to what Johnny e. L. Tinney said, which I think is absolutely right, is like if Le Non Rouge is connected to Nanabuja or Nanabush, then he is to be revered, respected, and loved, not vilified because he's the one putting things right. In that article that we mentioned before by Lee DeVito, I really like the article. Uh, went really in depth. It's a little longer, but you, that's where you get yeah, the information. Yeah, was a great article. Yeah, yeah. There's a picture of a uh, an ancient glyph on a rock, a pictograph. Yeah, which uh, Tenny mentioned that. Yeah, that specific image. Yeah, yeah. It's in Bon Echo Provincial Park in Ontario, Canada, and you can see the large rabbit ears on a human-like figure, and that it's it's very symbolic or iconic. This pictograph. But there's another thing here I want to go back to. Yes, in the original story, uh, leading into my final thoughts. And it goes back to where does this folklore originate from? And how does it end up here? Why are we getting this story now to us in this form? And that's the overarching theme of this show is that we have, you know, two things I'm really interested in. One, folklore and traditions, oral traditions of stories passed down, because I just, we, you and I just love stories, and also paranormal events, and how are those connected with lore and mythical figures and uh, things that may really have happened that are out of this world or unexplainable, and the spirit world. And so it comes back to what DeVito is talking about here in French folklore, as he says in the article, there are traditions of small beings called lutines, as you said. Europe is rich with tales of sprites, hobgoblins, elves, leprechauns, and countless other small and occasionally rascally supernatural beings. This Journal of American Folklore, published in 1892, again, pre-turn of the 20th century, quote, in the French-speaking parishes of the province of Quebec, the lutines are considered mischievous, fun-loving little spirits, which may be protecting or annoying household gods or demons, according to the treatment that they receive from the inmates of the house where they have chosen to dwell. It's like uh, uh, our, our own Miranda has covered uh, the kobolds. Yes. The sprites that, uh, the household elves. That's over at the Midnight Library. For those of you who don't know, that's another show produced by... Astonishing Legends Productions. It's a great podcast. Go check it out. It's over half a million downloads now. It's in, yeah, uh, and yeah. getting ready to come back with a new season. Right. And those are ones that, uh, these are household little wee folk that will help you out if you treat them nice. And, and again, same thing with Dobby the house elf uh, from Harry Potter. If you give him clothing, he's yours forever. Yes. Every culture, it seems, has some form of this. The passage also says that lutines have the ability to shapeshift and can take the form of a domestic pet. Lutines in the French-Canadian tradition are especially associated with black cats. 
Black cats have always had a rather suspicious reputation as associates of sorceresses and witches, but it is singular that among our peasants, they are regarded as protecting goblins, and that no one would think of parting with them, chasing them away, or ill-treating them in any manner. And that is part of uh, the Journal of American Folklore, which you just mentioned. So, so this is interesting. This black cat features prominently with this dark-complected person of, uh, who's unusually tall and delivers this prophetic message using the techniques of scrying. And, yeah. and all the elements are there. So like all the, all the story elements are there. You got the black cat, which again, you're wondering, is the cat a shape-shifting skinwalker ranch type entity? And really in some other form, sometimes it's Nain Rouge. It's a little person. And then I think about, uh, what was it, the cat, the Jevoudan episode of a Star Trek episode. And, and uh, remember he had the black cat and then they turned around and looked and it was actually a woman. Yes, yes, and yes. And Gary Seven, Gary Seven, the guy, yes. uh, and he had a helper. He had a familiar, but, uh, and he's kind of a, a warlock type magical figure, mm-hmm. uh, or at least he had technology. Yes. That was beyond uh, Star Trek and the Enterprise. So again, these are tropes and themes that come up again and again. And Black Cats is one of them. You have this uh, person, as I, you know, as we said in the interview here, I, you know, could picture as being described as a Roma woman. It was, be said at the time, a gypsy woman and how mysterious they are and Eastern European and, and, uh, you know, a, a vague accent, not quite French. And so you have all these mystical elements here, but the use of literary devices. So she has this liquid that's, uh, I guess, runs and pools like quicksilver, but it's clear. Yeah. It comes from a mysterious silver vial and, uh, you know, silver kills the werewolf. It's uh, pure. It has antimicrobial properties. If you've uh, listened to our ads about Macworld and underwear. Oh, those were a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I still, yes. I still uh, have them. I still order them. They're, they're, they're cool. Yeah. Uh, so the idea though, is that she's using a lot of literary elements to weave through this with some real people, or perhaps this is genuinely something she heard passed down. And that's how the story ended up. And it becomes a blend, as the DeVito article goes on to say, a blend of Native American, First Nation traditions, folklore, of real sightings. Uh, If you believe Bucky, and I, I think I tend to do, I don't know the guy, but if you take all these stories of people that we know that have seen weird things, weird cryptid creatures Mm -hmm. that seem to have anthropomorphized qualities. They were human-like. They seem to have understanding. That was the feeling that, uh, you know, again, some close friends of ours, uh, when they saw something really weird, that was not a regular animal, nor was it a, a little person or homunculus. It was something else. And there was a kind of a psychic connection there. And if you've seen Mothman Legacy, uh, Seth Breed loves film, you'll hear accounts of people who got a visit from Mothman and got this deep emotional feeling. And sometimes it was loss or um, fear from the Mothman. It's like, I don't belong here. I'm freezing. I can't get any help because I'm this creature or whatever. And I don't know what you guys are, but uh, I don't want to be here. Or that something bad is going to happen. And that ties back with the impressions of doom. So again, you could tie Mothman here. You can tie uh, little people. It's just, it's all a big bouillabaisse of There we go folklore. with the bouillabaisse. You haven't said that in a while. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it, uh, it's now part of the boy. Astonishing Legend zeitgeist. <laughs> it's if you believe our, any of this at all. It's our uh, <laughs> AL lexicon here. Yes. 
now I would love a bowl of that. But the idea, though, is that uh, it all gets blended down. And this is what the DeVito article is saying. It's like, who knows where these things happen? That's the nature of folklore. One person that the article cites is Kate Grandjean, or Grand Jean, an assistant professor at Wellesley College who specializes in early American and Native American history and who has been researching the history of the legend of the Nain Rouge for the forthcoming book, and she says, you know, my personal feeling, it's not really quite as simple as just European colonists appropriating some Native American spirit. She says, I think, and it seems to be demonstrable in the historical record that the Nain that we know in Detroit today probably has both French and Native traditions sort of wrapped up in it. Mm-hmm. That's also part of this uh, uh, fascinating look, and again, the look back on how do we end up with this crazy story that uh, I thought was actually like a little red devil, <laughs> the, key, uh, the little cartoon guy who advertises for hardware stores and uh, Devil Underwood Ham, you see him everywhere. And he's such a part of our, our culture. That's the advertising side of it, where it's a little red guy. But uh, according to this legend, something like that exists. Grand Jean goes on to say, the French definitely developed relationships with the Indians that were much more cooperative than the English. And so it's not outlandish or crazy to think that the traditions of different people would somehow come down through time in a blended way. And, and really, what does it matter? That's the nature of legends. It is the destiny of legends to be morphed and blended by the historical telephone game throughout the years, or Chinese whispers, whatever you want to call it. And that's what we enjoy today. And the important part, as E.L. Tenney says, quoted in the article here, is that that is the uh, the three deaths, the concept of the three deaths. This is the first death is when uh, your body doesn't function. The second death is when your body decays back into earth. And the third death is the final death where uh, sometime, somewhere in the future, it's the last time somebody ever says your name out loud. And that's when you're gone from history. And I, I think that's an Egyptian principle there as far as the name never being spoken and that's yeah that's the one of the one, for a long time that's been the one that freaks me out the most yeah <laughs> never. which is why i pushed you to oh. start this podcast hopefully i know <laughs> hopefully there won't be an emp that wipes out everything we've ever said I, I kind of had this thought that yeah after i'm dead and gone there will be countless hours of us blathering on forever <laughs> Well, out of the it, universe like for I said, a while. That'll yeah. keep us alive for a little while, right? It's changed throughout the years as far as like what stories and, and uh, details go on and, and uh, what we leave behind and our, what's our legacy. Yeah. What is uh, Cadillac's legacy? Well, it's a cool luxury car. <laughs> and there's the Snoop DeVille, the, <laughs> the Snoop Dogg version of the, the Coupe DeVille. And uh, some people know about it. Some people don't. It's been... Uh, probably whitewashed by history. And, and, uh, he was like, and that's okay guy, but he, he, he filled his pockets here and there and he wasn't all that scrupulous. And that's what his legacy is. Uh, with us, it's like, uh, there was that old saying when people were first developing a friend of mine, uh, his father worked on the Cray computer and their motto was if information doesn't exist in two different places at once, it does not exist. Meaning it's so fragile. If you lose a disc, it's gone. It didn't exist. Yeah. Same thing as a uh, one is none, two is one. Yeah. 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 Now, in terms of backup, I can't copies. get embarrassing photos of me off the internet. <laughs> try as I might. They're just there for, somehow they're, that's just permanent. They're just there forever. Yeah. In line of all that, this can all go away. And so you and I should start leaving uh, pectographs on rocks. Indeed. Uh, in a legal fashion on our right. own property. But uh, <laughs> something that will last because we're still seeing this. So anyway, that's kind of my wrap up here is that this story has all the tropes and uh, old chestnuts now, maybe three or four times in the uh, show. 
And that's why it's a great story. It's a great blending of, you know, as much as you may not like the Europeans moving in, someone was going to do it. And uh, that's just the nature of the world. And for, for good or bad, that's what we're ending up with. And I think that's why it should be preserved. So I'm glad people are still in some form taking these uh, these legends and uh, carrying on with them. And they will, like through time, evolve and morph and transmogrify. That's the first time I've said that in a while to whatever they're going to be. And that's the nature of uh, an astonishing legend. Well put, my friend. And I, too, am uh, positively gleeful that John E.L. Tinney is in there futzing with the gears of change on this one right now. (laughs) I think that's really cool. And I hope that his uh, movement gains more power there. And in fact, you could talk me post-COVID into going up there and marching with him to support (laughs) the short. But You know, these historical shows are always so fascinating to me, especially in this modern age of information. There's because, you know, there's a wide disparity between what was the prevailing narrative for decades and even centuries and what has since been discovered uh, since the world became so digitally interconnected. So we're only temporary experts, as we used to say on the show. Historians have spent years looking into Monsieur Cadillac, and in so doing, they've uncovered what is probably more of a truth to his existence. But the stories before that truth are still part of the big picture. But today, we have the benefit of uncovering information that was kept well hidden when these events actually mm-hmm. took place. A lot of the info that we found is, you know, on the Cadillac database, it's probably easily challengeable, but it does appear to be yeah. well-researched, and the information tracks based on our experience. But the long and short of it is that Antoine Lomay, uh, later Antoine de la Cadillac, was a scoundrel and a schemer, in my opinion, mm-hmm. taking advantage and laying <laughs> mm-hmm. waste to nearly everything he came in contact with, which probably is fairly consistent with a lot of opportunistic colonialist behavior. It was like right. a gold rush for anyone who could manage to get over to the new world. And yeah. I think it took a lot of nerve for people to pull up stakes and venture over here. It was a chance to claw your way to some kind of success because it was literally the origin of the Wild West. (laughs) Like There there were no Mm -hmm. rules. There was not a lot of policing and government, and it it didn't matter. There was – your ill-gotten gains were still gains. But, you know, the question is here, was De La Motte cursed by Lenon Rouge? Why does the Mm -hmm. legend of Lenon Rouge seem to start with him? There's no question he had a mighty downfall after crossing paths with the Red Dwarf. Right. But you could easily argue his own bad behavior brought that about. Well, and again, it's something that I brought up before because, uh, you know, if you analyze this as just a, uh, a fortune teller's uh, a reading, a cold reading, <laughs> yeah. a psychic reading, given how much of it was true, and we brought this up earlier, it's uh, you start looking at one big part. And again, back when COVID hit, people were looking at that Sylvia Brown quote, it's just like a mysterious uh, lung ailment will pop up or whatever and affect the world. People say, well, you know, we already had SARS at that point. It wasn't too hard to guess it was going to come up again. It's like, well, I don't know. She guessed 2020. That was pretty, you know, sticking to a year is pretty uh, significant. But then again, I think she said it was going to all kind of disappear rather quickly and then return again. Uh, was it 10, 20 years or whatever? So that remains to be seen. But here, this is one part that did not turn out to be true of the prophecy as told by Hamlin, unless you look at it in a different way. So she said, uh, your name will be scarcely known in the city you founded. Well, Cadillac is pretty well known, but do they know who the guy is? Maybe not so much. And also it's not his real name. 
So his real name is scarcely not known mm. in the city uh, that uh, he may or may not. That's what I'm no, no, I, cheating. No, don't get me wrong. I'm well, not proponent. At the, the time proponent. that he got the reading, his name was Cadillac, which is what the fortune teller would have known him as. And it is one yeah. of the most famous words in the world. Well, that's what I'm saying. So that part is wrong. Right. Uh, that part of the uh, prophecy you know is wrong. Why that's, it's wrong. That's my point. Because in 1883, yeah. nobody knew yeah. what a Cadillac was. And <laughs> if right. the car hadn't come along, he would be, and I read this in numerous postings, yeah, yeah. Uh, historically, he would be a footnote that would be hard to, you yeah. would have to study on to find him to a certain extent, because he's not even really the founder of Detroit. He put a settlement yeah. there and Detroit popped on top of it later. That's so, my point about all this prediction, uh, prophesy business yeah. is that uh, it's really hard to nail down. It's like, oh my gosh, is this legend true? Did it really happen? It d- depends on your your slight variations, you know what I'm saying here, and what you want to accept or, or, or be general in this. Is that true or not? Well, I still don't really have an opinion because in some ways, yes, some ways, no. Well, in my opinion, if you write a book 180 years later saying Mm -hmm. that, you know, 180 years prior to you writing the book, someone came along and predicted everything that happened in the next 180 years that were all before you wrote the book. I'm I'm not explaining this very well. I I, <laughs> no, I get but, what you mean. I get the, what you the mean. The point though, yes. is, like, she yeah. was aware of everything that was going to happen to him by the time she wrote the book because it was 180 years later. So it's easy right. to say, well, a fortune teller came and told him all this stuff that I already know happened to him. Right. Come right. on, I'll be the first person to say I believe in evil. I believe in demons it, it, to a certain extent. Um, I believe in. That Ooh. something like mm-hmm. this could exist. I just think that this yeah. story. I, I'm I'm going back with John on this too. It seems very appropriated. Right. It seemed like they were trying to incorporate, or she was trying to. And I understand this for at the time, her being uh, very loyal and patriotic to her country. But I think in Legends of Les Trois, she was trying to put a French stamp on this story that also would help explain the downfall of Cadillac. I think that was just a way it's like, okay, well, this is going to be in the history books. Everybody's going to know. I mean, a lot of stuff went sideways with this guy. How can we frame this? And then this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, maybe we are in a bar and maybe when she's saying the red dwarf, she is being racist. Maybe she's, uh, maybe it is at once racist, but still also a combination of First Nations folklore mixed with yeah. new folklore. It's very interesting to me that two years prior to her book, there's La Nine Rouge or Nine Rouge in Normandy. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of things coming together here. And like you said, to a certain extent, it doesn't matter because that's what right. folklore is. Yeah. Here's the thing. It's, it's not mutually exclusive. So if you look at Mothman, well, guess what? You also have the legend of Chief Cornstalks. Yes. I actually saw his monument there and have a photo of it. So yes, uh, he's right part of that, and that's been folded. And it's like, well, you mistreated him, and he cursed the land, and now this happened. So it's an easy. But he you know, didn't again, give. But there's no record of a curse. No. Yes, with him. No, that's what I'm saying. But yeah. he was a real dude. Yes, he was, he was a real dude. Uh, but I'm saying when you say it like that, you're perpetuating something that's since been shown to not oh, no, be no, the no. case. That's, there was well, no cornstalk curse. Well, that, that's, and, that's, and that, I, that, no, I just want to yeah. be fair. It's like it's not right. Oh, it was a Native American curse. The bridge fell and the Mothman, it's all that. Oh, no, no. I want to make uh, sure, clear that we're not saying yes, that. And not only yes. that, that curse has has been shown right. to not exist. Look, seriously, here's the point, is that it's it's the same kind of elements where uh, you have an area that uh, befalls some uh, negative uh, experiences. 
and people make connections. That's where, as humans, we want to make connections, and we often do that through folklore as a means of explaining things. So, uh, yeah, I'm totally on board with that. And I, again, I was not saying that, well, yes, uh, there you go, Chief Cornstock cursed everything, and then that's why we got Mothman. That's not part of it, but curses and uh, that kind of lore is. Take a look at the ancient troubles between the Ute tribes and the Navajo. And that predates any kind of uh, Sherman Skinwalker Ranch business. There's always something that goes on. Uh, there's always people that were there before you, uh, and they have their own thing going on. Other people come in, it gets morphed. And then now I think we're left with these uh, weird hotspots of, of uh, strange things happening. So, but here's my point about however the fortune teller story comes up or it was told or invented, that that doesn't mean that there isn't some kind of weird uh, <laughs> dwarfish spirit running around that people see. At least in my, because again, I, I've come to believe that there are strange creatures. No, you always come around to this point of view and I, this is where you and I agree. No right. matter what the realm of the story is, there's a seed to it there. And just because we can point to X, Y, and Z being falsehoods in its origins doesn't mean that doesn't prove that it's not there either. I go back to the point made in the Patterson-Gimlin film is that you can think of the all the story about Roger Patterson and the film and rushing uh, Yakima, getting the you know processed over the weekend the horse trip, all that, you might think that either Bob Gimlin was in on it or he's full of baloney. It doesn't matter because you look at what's on the film. And so the whole story about Roger being, uh, you know, he's a rascal and a liar and uh, he was planning on doing this. It's immaterial in that you have to look at what's on the film. That's a separate event in a way. Yeah. So that's what I'm wondering is that, uh, is there something running around that, uh, as, I, as I asked uh, Mr. Tenney, I'm not saying it's a tulpa, don't get me wrong here, is, but it, it's something that's floating around, that's uh, popping up here and there that people have seen, and then they attribute this to a legend of Nan Rouge. Well, yeah, and I, I was glad that you asked John about that, because I think it comes back to an idea, and this is, is, is my final thought, really. There's no question that Cadillac was taking advantage of local people, lining his pockets, behaving very poorly and continually getting away with it. And I think when the balance of the world is being thrown off like that, that the scales are going to autocorrect somehow. I think that there is a balance between good and bad, right and wrong, good and evil. And I think I believe in the yin and yang of that idea, because there's only so much that you can take advantage of the planet and the people living on it before what comes around goes around, and you'll find that you've lost everything, either on this plane or the next. And when you look at what Lenin Rouge supposedly did, whether I think that it was fictionalized in that book or not, he was a messenger. This was a warning. It was a warning from the fortune teller, and Lenin Rouge was a messenger too. It's like, you better watch out. You know, you still have a chance to put this right. Can you treat even me right just for a second? <laughs> and no, he couldn't. And when he didn't, he lost everything. So, that, I agree with Tinny there. It's not something you should be driving out of town. It's a force for good because you don't need people like Cadillac around. That's not going to lead to good things. And so getting him out of town is actually fixing things, in my opinion. So when I look at Lenin Rouge, I see someone who, or something that's not a villain, but uh, more like a hero. 
So the next time they have that parade and John is out there with the support, the short and the signs, I think I'm going to go and stand on his side of the field. That's going to wrap up tonight's show. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hello. So my name is spelled B-E-N. I'm Hannah. Galaxy White in perpetuity. I understand this is with no implied promise. Okay, here's my segue. Hannah. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>